Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Monday morning, September the 26th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good, Good morning. morning, Freehold. I guess we can all agree that that was a draw. <laughs> that was so sounded. You know what that sounded like to me? Tell me if I'm wrong. Did you record a happy-sounding freehold later in the day and just have that on a button ready to play? I did. <laughs> See? because he, I, I just lost a lot of respect for him. I just, I mean, he had gained some respect, some street cred, and he just lost all of it in one mere moment. I want to hear that again. Can you play it again? I think he's trying. I don't... Yeah, I don't know why he'd want to play that again, but he did. <laughs> no, that's funny. So, so he can. What's never, funny about that? Because it, he obviously had to, at a later point in the day, maybe m being more awake or just whatever, he decided he was going to play a happy version of "Good Morning Ken." How are you? He can't fake it in the morning. Yeah, I, I, mean, I know he's not, not happy. No, yeah. who, who's happy at six oh seven? That's pretty good. Well, you always told me that I'm not chipper enough. Well, you're not chipper enough. I'm trying, enough. Ken. But don't don't record <laughs> so a chipper you had to, version of yourself. Chipperness. Yeah. Don't don't. I mean. Okay. Can we start <laughs> That's over? Funny. Let's let's go. Start over. You think that was funny? I think it's pretty pretty okay. cool. Pretty funny. Well, you'll empower him to do other silly no, things well, like that. You know, by yeah. thinking that's funny. Well, um, <laughs> any particular sports story you want to talk about over another? This morning, uh, I mean, what, what sports story interests you the most this morning? The Phillies and Braves split a four-game series, right, right? Right. Phillies win, Braves win. Phillies win, Braves win. Um, so that's a um, that is that would be a draw. Yep. Um, the Braves are a game and a half behind the Mets, uh, a game and a half total. But they play today. The Mets don't play today. So after today, the Braves will either be two games behind or one game behind, heading into a hurricane a potentially hurricane uh threatened weekend series with the new york mets so what see i mean other than the braves is yep. there another sports story that interests you freehold any particular sports <laughs> story interests you more than others your phillies excuse me your eagles are playing really really well yeah, we already in the national football phillies. league yeah. yeah i mean the eagles are playing really well i am in three leagues uh fantasy leagues yes okay so uh through three weeks i played nine games I won one of nine. That's not mm. that's, wow. that's not a real good record there yeah. for you. <laughs> Let somebody else help draft your team. Rev, anything in particular you got on your mind? Uh, yeah, when it comes to sports, uh, I want I want to I want to talk Gamecocks. I okay. want to hear your take on how the team played. I mean, obviously we got a W and a you know the big score. Yeah, um, kind of a tale of two halves. Mm -hmm. The first half of the game looked like they've looked pretty much all year. The second half, um, well, I mean, there's a lot of things kicking there. Um, Charlotte's not good at all on offense, excuse me, on defense. Probably one of the worst defensive football teams I have ever seen in all of my life. And I've seen a lot of football, but the Charlotte defense is about as bad as any defense I have ever seen in my life. Um, and the offenses that have struggled tend to not struggle so much when you play defenses um, that bad. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've said it and I'll say it again. I think the Gamecock football season comes down to um, four games. Uh, maybe five games. Let's say five games. And one's already been played. Uh, you're, you're not going to beat Georgia, no matter where you play them. You're not going to beat Clemson um, up there. I mean, you're just not. But that's asking too much out of this team at this moment in time. Now, here in Clemson fans, we got our issues. Now, I mean, you got some issues. But, but the Clemson issues are, are we elite or just good? The Gamecocks are, are we are we bad or can we be competitive against some of these? Um, <laughs> well, well, if the Gamecocks are good... And Clemson is just good at the same time, unlikely 
at uh, Death well, I mean, Valley. But the, but the Gamecocks aren't good. Right. I mean, they, I mean that times, I mean, there's not. I mean, you can't say right. this is a good football right. team. So, so the you, Arkansas. You can't take a 50-point score from this past weekend and say you're no, good because, because you're playing a terrible, terrible exactly. defense. I get I mean, that. They, they I did look better, but you tend to look better when you're playing lousy, lousy defenses. So I don't put a lot of stock into that. Um, I looked at the Gamecock schedule at the beginning of the year, and I said, okay, the Arkansas game on the road. And they didn't embarrass themselves, but they got beat. Never were really in the game. The next test will be at Kentucky. Um, we'll find out a little bit more about Kentucky this week. They play at Ole Miss. So while the Gamecocks are playing South Carolina State, the Kentucky Wildcats are on the road. Is Kentucky in overranked, Oxford. you think? I don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody knows yeah. yet. Is Clemson overrated? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, that's why you play this season and you begin to find out these things. Um, but but I think you'll find out a little bit more about Kentucky this week when they travel to Oxford to play at Ole Miss. Um, and then you've got the Texas A&M game. You've got the Missouri game. You've got the Tennessee game. You've got the Florida game. None of these teams are great, but they're all, you know, they're a little bit better than South Carolina. Missouri may not be any better than South Carolina. Missouri may be a peer to the Gamecocks right now. Uh, what's his name? Drinkwitz, the new coach at Missouri. I think it's the second year or thereabout, but he's trying to build a program around a certain variety of offense or football that he likes to play. But I think when you look at the Gamecock football, I mean, there are there should have been three throwaway games. Well, excuse me, four throwaway games. By that, I mean um, no matter how bad the Gamecocks are, they should beat um, Georgia State. They should beat Charlotte. They've done that. They should beat Vanderbilt. They should beat South Carolina State. So those are four teams that they're just better than. Those are the only four teams on the schedule that as a Gamecock fan, I can honestly say, hey, we're better than they are. Are we better than Missouri? I think we are, but I don't know. Are we as good as Arkansas? Apparently not. Are we as good as Kentucky? We'll find out. Are we as good as Tennessee? Probably not, but you got them at home. Uh, are we as good as Florida? Probably not, but they seem to be having their issues as well. I mean, I think Clemson has solidifies its, solidified itself as the second best team South Carolina plays this year. I mean, I think George is clearly the best team. I think there's a debate about A&M still out there. You know, they blew the game against App State, or either App State just came and took care of business. But I think A&M has much better talent than South Carolina. A&M has talent similar to George, excuse, similar to, um, to Clemson. The best money can buy. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, it, and it's a big program. It's a, it's a well-funded program. Jimbo Fisher is a national championship coach. But A&M is still trying to find themselves. Uh, it looks to me the team on the uh, ascent in the in the, uh, in the the SEC East is Tennessee. I mean, it looks like they made a really good hire in Josh Heupel. I mean, it looks like that guy is a good coach. And um, I was texting with a Gamecock buddy of mine yesterday. The biggest question of the SEC East today, right now, as we speak, is Beamer, Napier, and Drinkwitz. I mean, those are three young guys that a lot of people believe can build a program. We'll see. The, the only uh, – they've done it at different levels in different capacities. I mean, Beamer's never been a head coach. Napier and Drinkwitz have, but they've never been a head coach at a, a program as big as Florida, Missouri, or in Beamer's case, South Carolina. So there are a lot of questions about the SEC East. Uh, I think Heupel's established himself at Tennessee. I mean, I think Tennessee's got a good program. Historically, they've been good. They had a lull after Fulmer left, but it looks to me like they've got a guy that can lead them, you know, down the road to the next potential challenging for a championship. But but go back to what I – I mean, under no condition is South Carolina going to be Georgia. I mean, that's just under, – under, under very little condition will South Carolina be Clemson. 
up there. I mean, it's just that's a, that's a big ask for this Gamecock team right now. Um, A&M at home is a big ask. But, but the other teams, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Tennessee, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we know. I mean, Tennessee's better than South Carolina, but, but how close is Tennessee to Georgia? I mean, we'll find that out at some point in time, but we're still in the period of time where we're a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, there are a lot of things we're trying to figure out as we go. Um, does Clemson have better football players than Wake Forest? Of course they do. Much better football players than Wake Forest, but that's a one-play game. I mean, that game comes down to overtime, and um, and the Wake quarterback can play, no question about it. But, but Clemson's got better football players than Wake. Wake just figured out a way to hang around. Clemson will be more tested this Saturday against NC State. NC State's got better players than Wake Forest, and they should. You know, I was thinking about this uh, tailgating Saturday, arguing with our, our tailgate comrades. Um, you could argue that Wake Forest is the biggest overachiever in college football. I mean, it's a private school, 3,500, 3,800 students, um, no big football budget, no reason really and truly to be competitive with Clemson. But but they compete. I mean, they, they just for some stupid reason or some unknown reason, as far as I'm concerned, they find a coach – that fits that program, fits that personnel, and they just get after you. I mean, they, they just do. They just, um, you know, it's it's almost who Vanderbilt should be. I mean, Vanderbilt is not, but it's who Vanderbilt should be. Now, now you're making That's a bigger ask of Vanderbilt, and I think even the most diehard ACC fan will admit that Vanderbilt has a much tougher road to hoe than, than Wake Forest because of its conference affiliation. I mean, Vandy plays in consecutive weeks, I think, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, you know, I mean, it's, it's a big, I mean, when you're a school that is known for its academic prestige and not so much its football program, it's a big ask. But, um, but Wake Forest is as much an overachiever in college football as any program in America. And, you know, tip your hat to um, Coach Clawson and the Demon Deacons, because once again, what, double overtime? I think it was a double overtime game. I'm, I'm tailgating, watching the game on television. And then uh, Tennessee and Florida came on after that. So it's a good day. Uh, to be a game guy, you win a game. Uh, Clemson wins a game. Uh, it looks to me like Clemson needs to clean up some things, work on some things. I think Jason said, Jason Priester from um, Clemson Sports Illustrated said the backside of their defense struggles, and it did. I mean, you know, Wake took advantage of some young players on the back end. I'm talking about safeties and corners, and um, and Clemson had some issues, but they held on and won. I mean, you know, so they're now positioned to make a run at another playoff if indeed they stay clean. Uh, but, uh, you know, NC State's going to have a good, good football team coming to Raleigh, excuse me, coming to Clemson this week. If that game were in Raleigh, that would be very interesting. But but because it's in Clemson, because it's a night game, I just got to believe that the Tigers will prevail. But but Wake's, NC State's got better players than Wake does. So we'll see um, how that works itself out. Now we got a hurricane that may or may not impact the affairs of Clemson and South Carolina. Because the Tigers are playing at home in Greenville, excuse me, in um, Clemson. And the Gamecocks are playing at home against uh, SC State in Columbia. But uh, we may try to do a daily tracker. I told Rev this morning, I mean, I just feel like we need to get in touch with um, WMBF meteorologist team and see if we can get them on daily to kind of walk us through what the expected route of this uh, hurricane is, what its um, expected timeline and is. those spaghetti models have been all over the place. Well, I, mean, I heard, changed the, the last I heard this morning for the first time this year, the European model. Oh, yeah. yeah and, and the American <laughs> model. And, you know, when has it actually going almost through downtown Atlanta? And you're talking yeah. about the Braves and Mets this weekend. So, oh, so, so there are a lot of things at risk. If you're a sports fan, obviously public safety and, you know, keeping people's houses intact and, 
and careers in place is more important. But if you're a sports fan, if you're a Tiger or a Gamecock or a Braves fan, I mean, there's a reason to keep one eye on the weather because it looks to me like right now they're predicting this thing to make landfall somewhere in West uh, Florida along the Panhandle and then work its way up northward. Uh, there's some modeling that has it turned easterly. There's some that has it turns, excuse me, turning a westerly, no easterly. And then there's some that have it going almost at a straight line up through Atlanta and all that. So we'll see. But um, but I would imagine in some way, shape, or form is going to affect the athletic events of this weekend that you and I have a lot of interest in, yep. uh, that being Clemson football, Gamecock football, and Atlanta Braves baseball. Let's go to the vault. Well, but, uh, before we before we leave sports, you got any comments on racing yesterday? Got to get better tires, man. I'm telling you, Goodyear's going to, I mean, th- this new car is a rigid, rigid car. And it does not absorb, you, you've heard the old saying, when the Formula One car flies into a million pieces, that's the way it was designed. I mean, it absorbs the energy. And the driver is kept safe because these parts fly off of the car. This next generation car is not like that. It's a rigid car. And I've heard the drivers say they feel it harder than, you know, television doesn't do this justice. I mean, it doesn't look like the car is going that fast when it backs into a wall or runs into a wall. But, I mean, at Texas Motor Speedway, those cars are running 200 miles an hour at certain points on that on that racetrack. And you drive off in a corner at 200 miles an hour with about 50-50 confidence in that tire. I mean, that that's a um, Goodyear's got to do better. And I'm not blame. I don't have any idea what happened. But at about 30 to 35 laps, those tires began giving out. And I think there were four leaders. If I'm not mistaken, there were four leaders that, um, I mean, world-class NASCAR drivers who, I mean, you know, it looks like they lose the car. You know, they're going to the corner. No, the tire blows out. And you just can't hold it in. You know, you can't stop it from hitting the wall once the tire blows out. But, yeah, as, as a NASCAR fan, yesterday concerned me because, once again, the tire compound is supposed to be engineered and researched by Goodyear to accommodate whatever track conditions there are, and they just missed it. I mean, they missed it in a major, major way. And I remember Daryl Waltrip saying one day about tires. Waltrip said, if Goodyear misses the tire compound consistently, you all of a sudden have a lot of race car drivers limping in the garage. And we don't want mm-hmm. race car drivers limping in the garage. Now, they made a total dedication to public safety, excuse me, to driver safety. Since Dale Earnhardt Sr. died in 2001, NASCAR has spent, I mean, I, I think I've read in excess of a couple of billion dollars on driver safety to make sure these these capsules, you know what I mean, these driver compartments, these chair, I mean, excuse me, these, um, I mean, if you go back and look at the show cars when, when you were in radio, you know, and, and they'd come to Darlington oh, yeah. and they'd be at the, the convenience store, the gas station, the mall, and you basically mean, sit on a couple of boards. <laughs> yeah, a couple of boards with a big heavy seat belt, but, yeah. but now they have these Hans devices and these wraparound oh, yeah. cages for the drivers. I mean, they've really dedicated a lot of their resources to keeping drivers safe, but it's still a car running 200 miles an hour, running into a wall, stopping at about 50 or 60 or 70 feet. And I think yesterday was a bad, bad, bad day, not just for the drivers who were affected, but Goodyear on average, and I think somebody's got to sit down with Goodyear and say, hey, that can't happen again. I mean, whatever you've got to do. I mean, if the if the tire's just hard and, and, and it slows the cars down and doesn't make the racing as good, th- then we'll have to go there now while we adjust accordingly. But, you know, we I heard can't. During the race yesterday, Goodyear recommended a pressure change in the tires. NASCAR approved it, so obviously they were having some issues. Well, 
it's Brad Doherty said it best. I mean, Brad Doherty said, you know, you're talking about crew chiefs asking drivers, you know, do you want to go faster? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a car race. I mean, the, the, the notion is outrun everybody. I mean, race car drivers do what for a living? They drive cars fast. And all of a sudden, NASCAR and Goodyear are negotiating what sort of tire pressure and the driver and crew chief are talking about, should we drive fast or not? I mean, at a race, that shouldn't be the question. Right. I mean, it's, it's a race. It's not a, it's not a parade. It's not a ride around the park. It's a race. And, um, and, and I think drivers and teams should expect Goodyear to bring a tire that allows them to drive off into the corner as if they were race car drivers, because that's <laughs> what they are. Uh, they're not there to kind of ride around and, and look pretty. They're there to go fast, and the tire needs to accommodate them going fast. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Power, the power may evolve. Outpace technology, kid. I mean, you think about it, it takes a hell of a damn, uh, a hell of a tire to handle that kind of stress. But anyway, I, that's not why I called. I was down at uh, Cape Romaine yesterday, down on the pier, and there was a black family there. And the reason I mentioned their race is, is because everybody thinks that there's this huge divide and also that all black folks fall in lockstep with the Democrat Party. But anyway, he was telling me he was a veteran, that his wife was a nurse. You know, my wife and I were talking to his family and his kids and everything. And I said, he said he was in Afghanistan. And I said, gee, man, I feel so bad for you. You know, you go over there and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, they all, he goes, yeah. He goes, that Biden really, you know, say, so anyway, it turns out, long story short, this guy thinks more like you and I do than you and I do. And his wife does too. He had zero trust for the government. He had zero trust for the, for the joint chiefs of staff, the Pentagon, the people supposed he had he, he was he made us look a little moderate. And he was you know, he was a very nice, articulate young man. I put him at about thirty five. And he but the point I'm making is there's a strong I, I, most of the African Americans about all of them that I engage with and I start talking about crazy stuff going on, like, you know, uh, you know, the stuff with this LGBT and all that kind of stuff. And I talk to them about uh, how stupid Biden looks and all that. And they agree. They agree. Now, whether or not they're saying, you know, or they vote that way, I don't know. But I'll tell you this. I would like right now to know how many of our – see, now, there's a difference between a liberal – and uh, I don't think we need to call them liberals anymore. That's that's giving them a compliment, really. True liberalism is a good thing, you know, because it's all about liberty and so forth. But uh, these leftists, these fascists, I wonder how many of them, how they feel knowing that they have possibly destroyed their child's heart by shoving all of these vaccines and boosters down without you know, trusting these people and trusting these people and the vast majority of them the reason they were all standing in line and to put on their masks and to put on, and to get all their vaccines and all that was because of their politics and now you probably gonna have millions of young men who will not be able to be strong young men because your government and I would say purposefully have weakened them and I'm telling you right now, everything that's going on has been going on. I, isn't it ironic that the, that the vaccine only affects these young men? But I will tell you what else it probably has done. These vaccines and boosters have probably changed these people's DNA 
and I'm talking about the women too, and all these young girls that got it. And I'm wondering what it's going to do to the human race where they start having babies. Have they done something intentionally to make us all weaker and live and not live as long? And if you think that's a conspiracy theory, you better think again, brother. Because I believe everything that's going on is going on for a purpose. And, I, and there's no doubt in my mind that this whole COVID thing was purposeful. The vaccine thing was purposeful. The shutdown was purposeful. The mask was purposeful. And we all got played. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. You know, as we begin the show on Monday morning, takes Mondays to make Fridays, I always kind of argue within myself, what do I believe will be the biggest story of the week on this radio show? Um, you know, obviously, I have the ability to kind of point it in one direction or another. And, you know, Breeze calls in and has his opinions, and other people call in with their opinions, and um, some kind of gain a little traction and have a little spark. And, uh, you know, another call and another and another and another. Next thing you know, a couple of days of radio have been about a single issue. Um, the majority of what we'll talk about between now and the finish line with the midterms are the midterms. I mean, I think we'll spend a lot of time discussing, you know, the likelihood or not the Republicans take control. But but I don't think that's the biggest story. I mean, political power and a transference of political power is always a big story, especially in the most powerful country on, on the planet. So anytime America has a midterm election and it looks like one party may get thrown out of power, I mean, that's a big story. Um, but, but the bigger story is the economy and have we, um, waged too much of our future on what is right now. I mean, I really believe that that is the story and will be the dominant story for the next year, year and a half, maybe even, um, two years. Explain what you just said. That was very interesting about we wage too much of our future on what is now. Well, I mean, I'll give an example. Um, I went back and read the Wall Street Journal last week one day. Uh, President Biden has allowed about 200 million barrels of oil to be withdrawn from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's about 30% of the total reserve that he inherited. Um, There's only been four examples in American history where we have drawn down on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It's kind of been in our back pocket. Hey, we can do this just in case. We drew 17.3 million barrels down during Operation Desert Storm in 1991. We drew about 21 million barrels down following Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and about 30.6 million barrels following the military intervention of Libya in 2011. So in American history, we've had about 800 billion, excuse me, about about 800 million barrels of oil are to, to draw down if needed to address whatever emergency we may or may not have had. Um, but we're drawing it down by 30%. We're not at war. We're not in declared war, but we're having some economic hardship. And instead of experiencing the economic hardship, we're putting our national security at risk. Well, I mean, you can do that once and get away with it. It can't be a governing philosophy. And our governing and economic philosophy has become, what can we do to avoid bad times? What can we do to make sure we don't deal with the economic cycles, the necessary purging and cleansing of economic, you know, bad, bad economy or bad businesses, bad decisions? Or in this case, politics, because the, the president and the administration were getting hammered because of the high gas prices. Well, so I mean, this was a way to com- 
compete against that, right? That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, there is no emergency. I mean, there is no strategic disadvantage here. I mean, the country's not in harm's way. I mean, I, you know, I, I understand when Katrina tears up some of the refineries in the Gulf. I understand making a, an emergency sort of decision. But, you know, we, we did it because we just have bad energy policy and gas is going to get too expensive. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're, we're producing about domestically about 11 million barrels a day. We're consuming about 20 million barrels a day. Um, so we got to make up that 8.3 some way. All of a sudden, Biden has a, a an event in Ukraine. Excuse me, um, Putin and Ukraine have this geopolitical event that reshapes the supply and demand dynamic, and we panic. We, we, we do everything we can to convince the American consumer and voter, really the voter, you know, that we've got your back. And I think there are times the political system just can't have our back. And the economy's got to take care of itself. And when I look at some of the, and I'm talking about, this is less geopolitical and more economic. I mean, I think we've made tremendous, monumental, fundamental mistakes within our global economy. I mean, we're talking about central bankers. You know, well, uh, you know th- those guys really are the masters of the universe. And now the central bank appears to be committed to really dealing with inflation in the most aggressive way imaginable. And everybody's in a tizzy. I mean, everybody's in an uproar. Um, There's an interesting um, five-minute segment I want to play here to kind of frame the next hour, maybe hour and a half, of our debate. I mean, I've accused CNBC of being sunshine pumpers. And I wonder sometimes if Jim Cramer's father doesn't own CNBC, and that's the only way he keeps his job. But there's some people out there that are not on every day, but will speak their minds. Rick Santelli is one of these guys who before 2008 said, I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, to believe that we have this many houses financed with subprime mortgages not verified, and to believe that, I mean, there were people at CNBC saying, uh, you know, hey, this will happen a week or two or three. We'll have a little bit of bad times and everything will get back to normal. No, and I think we're worse today than we were in 08. Not housing. I don't think the housing market is as bad today as it was in 2008. I mean, I think the housing market will see asset depreciation, but I don't think you'll see a meltdown of the housing market. I do think you're going to see a tremendous downturn in the economy. I think you're going to see a tremendous downturn in the value of, um, of assets. I'm talking about equity and Wall Street. Um, let's do this. It's about five minutes long, and I think this will frame some of the next hour and a half conversation. This is Austin Goolsby who is an economist, a chief economist for the uh, Obama administration. This is Rick Santelli, who's an old hand, but a straight shooter at CNBC. And Mick Mulvaney, who is a former congressman from South Carolina, but also ran the OMB for the Trump White House. Let's go there. Yeah, that they made things so liquid for so long, didn't raise rates. Now they're in a position where they don't have any firing power left, and they're going to have to raise rates. Um, as we look at an economic slowdown, in fact, that's almost the intent of what that is, the intent of what they're doing to try and deal with this. Would you rate the Fed as doing a good job? You look back, you see what happened and, and what they're doing right now? I think what they're doing now, they should be raising rates. They should have started earlier. The thing is, there's one side that says the inflation came from too much demand, and that's the traditional Fed should just raise rates to reduce demand. But there's this whole supply side component that Mick mentioned that if you think the inflation is at least partly coming from supply side, Fed raising interest rate is not going to pump oil. Fed raising interest rate is not going to make computer chips. And so there is a danger of stagflation. So the Fed has got to balance out some things that it doesn't normally need to balance out.
Rick, when you um, look at these moves that are taking place, you said you don't think modern monetary theory is going to come back for a long time to come. At least I think that was you. Maybe it was Mick. Um, it, these are some pretty difficult lessons that we're going to have to learn. What would you equate it to? Because you've been watching the bond markets for a very long time. Yeah, it's not only modern uh, monetary theory. It, it was never a good idea. It, it was a, a stupid idea, and, and we're seeing living proof of that. You can't print forever and think you can get away with it. Look at what the pound's doing. But I think if there's a lesson to be learned here, it's the fact that central bankers in general and governments in particular have this unique relationship that we need to find a way to separate. And it isn't necessarily a political relationship. It's an enabling relationship. They are enablers. By these low interest rates and hanging out at zero for so long, they allowed governments to do anything. They allowed companies to remain that should have died. They ruined the entire infrastructure of global finance. And to think that it's going to come together easily or if central banks have any plan, there is no way to put this Humpty Dumpty back together. There needs to be lots of financial destruction first. And from that, the Arizona will rise. The best fertilizer for the global economy right now is for all of these issues, whether it's foreign exchange, government debt, corporates, all of these financial instruments have to be pushed down to some level that represents true risk-to-value returns versus the pie-in-the-sky valuations and returns that many were getting with virtually no risk. All right, Austin, I want to come back to you and have you put on your economics hat and just talk this through for a minute. Um, we are now talking about Goldman Sachs and other places saying that a hard landing is much more likely. What does a hard landing look like from the economic perspective? Yes. How would you lay that out, and what are the odds of a hard landing in your opinion? Well, I think decently high. I always have my economic hat on, Becky, and I appreciate that. Uh, the thing is... The most common cause of recession in the United States, more than two-thirds of the recessions that we've ever had since we've been keeping the data, came from the Fed raising interest rates faster than the economy can handle. So when you're in an environment where the Fed is going to meeting after meeting raise 75 basis points or more, there's a decent chance that they overshoot and create a recession slash hard landing rather than soft landing. And you know what that looks like. It looks like savage times for any part of the economy that's interest rate sensitive. So that's housing, autos, consumer durables, business investment. Those are going to be the first places where, where you see things go wrong. And Mick Mulvaney, from an OMB perspective, uh, what happens as interest rates rise? How much more difficult is this for us to finance our debt? It, it becomes a vicious cycle, right? You end up borrowing more money to pay the interest bill. The interest bill this year, Becky, will exceed the amount of money we spend on the Department of Agriculture and Education, Interior, Commerce, Treasury, put together. It's a huge sum of money. The real question is this, I think, is, is the Fed is doing what the Fed is doing, right? I, I blame the Fed for making bad decisions, as I think Austin does. I don't really blame them now for raising interest rates because it's really the only tool that they have. Where's the other tools that we could be bringing to bear here to, to make the situation better? Where is the discussion in this country for the last six months, 12 months, about deregulating? Where is it, where are we having discussions like the Germans who are now burning coal, the British who I said are going uh, to explore fracking, the Japanese 
who are looking at going back to a nuclear policy. Where is the same discussion in this country? Let the Fed do what it does on demand destruction. It's all they know how to do. But where is the policy coming out of Washington, D.C. on the supply side to make it easier to make more things and bring prices down that way instead of having a hard landing and focusing just on demand destruction, which is where it looks like we're going right now? Takes Mondays to make Fridays. I want to try to be, I mean, this is about as, suspic- uh, as complicated or sophisticated as I can get. I'm, I'm not an economist. I say that over and over and over again. So take what I say with a grain of salt. But I do read these things. I try and understand these things. I speak with people who have vast knowledge about these sorts of things. It seems to me, and I understand raising rates. I mean, didn't know what Mick just said. I mean, Mick just yeah. said raise rates. Guess what the Fed does? The, the Fed's intent is to raise interest rates to cool inflation, which has a depressing effect on the economy. I mean, you don't have to be an economist to understand that. Fair enough. I mean, I think most of us understand the effect of raising interest rates. That's the idea, right? It it will attack inflation, but it does create what? Economic distress. I mean, it leads to a weaker economy. It leads to higher unemployment. It leads to lower demand. I mean, it it creates, it, it has a depressing, at least a recessionary effect on the economy. The one thing that I'd like to see us do, and I think Republicans could argue this point better than anybody, let's try to come up with a plan that stabilizes currency. When you look at the dollar, I mean, I saw this morning, the dollar's having a good run. You know why the dollar's having a good run? Not because we're in a good place, but because we're not in as bad a place as some of the other European economies. When you look at the euro dollar's futures market, I mean, I had a buddy of mine who is an economist who does understand this, uh, works in government, but he said, hey, Pay attention to the euro's market, excuse me, the euro dollar's futures market. Um, if the world foresees an economic calamity or economic um, disarray, they're going to invest in the dollar because they believe that's still the safe haven. As weak as, as it is, it's still better than some of the foreign currencies, some of the uncertainty around uh, these other marketplaces. But, but once again, Reb, we, as a policy initiative, the Republicans, I think, could come up with two or three or four items that I think lead to a more stable currency. And that's right. You know what? I mean, when you raise in, when, when you raise interest rates and it has a depressing effect on the economy or at least a recessionary effect on the economy, you're making people poorer, right? I mean, not only Ultimately. in your 401k. I mean, we've seen what happened to the wall. I mean, the markets are down 200 points today. I mean, the futures are down over 200 points today. I mean, it, you know. People in that world believe there's a, a pretty good chance we could have another 20 or 30 percent sell-off in the market. Um, we've already we're, we're down what 20 percent now. Another 20 or 25 or 30 percent. I mean, I've seen some of these doom and gloomers say 40 percent sell-off in the market, and, and I get that. I mean, I understand we've made real bad decisions based on this um that this mindset. I don't want to say a belief, but based on this mindset of modern monetary theory. It's insane. It's it, it's it's. It's not to be taken seriously, but but as an aside from that, I do believe the Republicans could come up with some sort of sort of plan or program. I mean, there's a few Republican economists out there. There aren't many, but there's still a few, um, you know, capitalist believing economists out there. And I think direct some of these economists as a if I were a Republican president and I put in charge of my, you know, my economic advising team, I would have somebody on that team with a clear vision and, and you know, a direction of, hey, how do we solidify our currency? How do we stabilize our currency? Once again, I get, you get, the majority of us understand that raising interest rates is going to cool inflation, but it's also going to have a negative effect on the economy. 
It's going to lead to bigger or higher unemployment. It's going to lead to slower wage growth. I mean, there are a lot of things that are going to happen if we continue to raise rates. And I know that's what the Fed does. And, and I believe the Fed, under its breath and its private moments, will admit they waited far too long to raise rates. They allowed quantitative easing to um, distort the economy far longer than they should have. That's water under the bridge. There's nothing we can do now about the $8.5, $9 trillion on the, Fed, on the Fed's balance sheet except try and unwind it. And they are doing that with about $95 billion a month starting in September um, in quantitative tightening. That, that money's coming off the books, so to speak. That capital liquidity will not be out there in the economy circulating. But, but I think we've also, we've got to have the mindset of stabilizing the dollar, stabilizing our currency. And I don't hear any talk of that. The only person that I've heard mention that is Steve Forbes. Remember Forbes who ran for president with a yeah. flat tax and all yeah. these other, I mean, he's a little bit gimmicky kind of guy, but um, got money the old-fashioned way, he inherited it, <laughs> you know, but, um, but, but he has been a voice out there at times explaining why he believes that there's, we're overlooking this importance of maintaining a stable currency. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Well, uh, tackling a pretty... I guess, a consequential and serious issue this morning. But unbelievably issue. complicated, but incredibly complicated. But you talk about uh, how we deal with this. So what is the first thing you would do to help stabilize uh, the economy, well, I mean, the I, money supply? The, the, the no, first I, thing. I said stay. I didn't say stabilize the economy. Stabilize the value of your currency. I mean, I think that's important. That's, that's important. And we got the Bretton Woods and the gold standard and all these other sorts of debates. And I mean, all those it ultimately are is about stabilizing. But I mean, the, the, the first thing you got to do is stop printing as many. Stop spending as much. I mean, that's the first thing. I mean, that, that sounds simple. Seems pretty simple. But that's what you've got to do. You've got to insist require of a government to not spend money it doesn't have and the Fed not buy that debt with the money they don't have. I mean, that's that's a pretty simple answer, but that's a big ask. Ronald Reagan once said a lot of the answers in American government are Excuse me, they're, they're simple, but not easy. I mean, these answers are, they're not simple to put into in a very complex economic model. I mean, I'll agree with that. I'll accept that. But, but I think at some point in time, and once again, Rev, our, our, our answer has to be right now. And I think Mick said it better than I. Um, that's what the Fed does. I mean, the Fed has that tool in its toolbox. The Fed, when it feels like inflation is out of control, it raises rates to depress economic activity to drive asset depreciation, to slow down the economy, and, and you get poor, I get poor, everybody else gets poor, there are more people unemployed, the economy slows down, and and, and then it kind of, you know, we, we begin to see what is on the other side. But we've done nothing to address spending. We're doing absolutely nothing to address spending. We're, we're curtailing production. Uh, what Mick just said a second ago, um, regulation and permitting and some of these other things, um, oil and gas exploration. I mean, you know, the transition to green energy has, has created a lot of conflict within the fossil fuel industry that we have been so dependent upon. So n none of these answers are easy. I'm not arguing that if I had, you know, the keys to the liquor cabinet, just get out of my way and let me do it and I'll show you how it needs to be to be done but the first thing you do to stabilize your currency is not spend more of it than you have and to limit the producing mind you of our um of the dollar i mean it just you no know, government has to begin to live within its means um and i think what santelli said is interesting not only is government and the fed become complicit one with another the feds become the enabler i mean it's the enabling parent of a drug addict 
You know I mean, what if they didn't print them? I, I don't have any idea what the, I have no that, idea. That I've thought of that a million times. I have no, what if Congress appropriated a billion a uh, hundred billion dollars today to do something cool and the Fed didn't buy the debt? And there was not the public demand. Now there's a public demand now because economies around the world are struggling and this goes back to that euro, you know, the 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 currency index. But but yeah, I mean what would happen if one day the federal government said we're going to spend 100 billion dollars and the Fed or the public said, but we're not going to buy buy that debt. I have no idea. I mean, I think eventually we get there, but but I think we've got to figure out as part of our plan stabilizing our currency. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Um, I don't I don't say this to, to brag. I want to say this to make a point afterwards. My undergraduate degree is in economics, and I have a master's degree in public administration. And both of those disciplines study public finance. And the one question that was never, ever, ever addressed in any of that education is, and I'm going to ask you the question, and you're going to go, wow. How much money do we actually need? And who handles that? I mean, how do you decide how much money the United States needs in circulation? And, and what are your metrics? What are your measurables, as you like to say? Do we do it on population? Do we need $10,000 for every person in the country? Do we do it based on the asset value of, of, of the buildings and real estate? Do we, how do we decide? How much money we need? Do we say, okay, well, how much money did we spend last year? Okay, well, we need at least that much. I do not know the answer to that question. And what impact would that have on the way our government spends if, if we just said, this is it. The maximum amount of money that we can have is, I'll just make a, a fake number, all you can have is a million dollars. And until the United States has an extra 10,000 people, you can't add another dollar to circulation. How do you decide when you have too much money? It seems to me like we don't decide until we see the effects of it. And then we say, oh, oops, that, that was too much money, guys. we got to back that off. But I would think by now, with all the recessions that we've had and with all the booms that we've had, and we ought to know, um, and, and it ought to be a little more automatic than it is. But see, Larry, Larry to, to me now, and, and I, I don't know this is the answer, but to me, the amount of money we need is the revenue the government has been allowed to collect. You may like some of the tax policy. You may not like some of the tax policy. But but the tax policy of the United States of America allowed it to collect about $4.05 trillion last year. It seems to me that that's the number. Well, that's the number for the government, but I mean, what is the number that we need? Because in order to give the government $4 trillion, then we've got to generate, you know, 12 or $13 trillion worth of economic activity. So how much money, I'm talking about the money supply, not the federal budget, because it's the money supply that's the problem. The federal government created $1 or $2 trillion that it immediately put into the money supply which has caused a lot of this problem, right, or 2 or $3 trillion that it injected into the money supply. That's what's causing the problem is when, when, we, when we go to the Fed and say, give us this money, we're going to enact all these programs, we're going to give school districts and colleges and, and all these other municipalities all this money, and it got injected. I know we don't, maybe not efficiently, but it, it has slowly ended up out here, you know, spinning around in the atmosphere. How much is too much? 
economic activity. Because when you've got all this money and it creates all this demand, that's where we get all this inflation from. Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. So you see what I'm saying? How yeah, sure I do. Sure I do. Nobody's talking about that. And then the, the, the next question is, okay, guys, we're all saying the futures are down, this is down, that's down. And, you know, you can talk to, to somebody like Reggie, and Reggie will say, well, you know, maybe we need to begin to rotate a little bit of our money out of stocks. But somebody like me would say, you need to get out altogether, but where are you going to put it? What are you going to, what are you, where is it going to go? And then the next question is, do we need a central bank that's not run by the government? Because we, we see what, what's gone wrong here, but my Lord, what would it be like if the United States Treasury and all of its political workings were back in control of the money supply as it was before the central bank? But Larry, wouldn't you agree that the, the, the okay, you, you and I agree that nobody's ever defined how much money the American economy really needs to function and, and grow at a reasonable rate. Without all That's the distortion right. and all the manipulation, you know it, I know it, they distort, they manipulate, some win, some lose. Um, sometimes it's worse than, than, than at other times. But, but you, you, I think you would agree with me that at some point in time, we've got to measure the dollar against some tangible asset, whether it's gold, whether it's some sort of computerized algorithm, you know, that, that allows this much more capital. When this much more, this many more people are born in the country, we go from 200 million to 300 million people. Obviously, you need more money for an economy to operate at 300 million people than 200 million people, but it's got to be predicated upon some valuation. You see what I'm saying? You can't just you can't just all of a sudden print five trillion dollars because you you don't want people to have hardship during a pandemic. No, but but if you don't print some amount of money, I mean, I guess it, and it would be okay except for international trade. But you know, you could buy you could buy a house for twelve dollars if we just quit printing money. The value of those dollars would just get so high. But but really, the only place that that causes a big problem is when you start doing business overseas and you've got to exchange currencies and then it makes it really hard for people to buy our exports. So there's so many things that have to be balanced out. But I have to think, you said the term computer model, that in this day and age we should be probably using some more sophisticated computer models maybe than we're using because I think a lot of what the Fed does is, is rooted in probably 1970s, 1980s technology at best. And so and and maybe, you know, we need, I don't know if we need more political influence over the Fed or less. It's, it's hard to say. This really does get complicated, doesn't it? Oh, well, it's extremely complicated. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate the call um, on a early Monday morning. Got me kind of, you know, the gears turning a big in my... <laughs> yeah. Look, what, what Larry is saying basically is you've got to, I mean, we've got to inject liquidity into the economy as the economy grows, right? I mean, where does all money come from? I mean, does anybody else have a printing press? Can anybody else create money out of thin air? But if the if the GDP of the of the largest economy in the world is twenty two trillion dollars and there are three hundred thirty million people in America, what happens when there are four hundred million people in America? I mean, there's always going to be a kind of an ebb and flow of currency. I mean, how much money does it take to keep the the, the economy in equilibrium? I mean, that's a complicated answer. I mean, that's way above my pay grade. But those are the right questions to be asked. Now, I do believe this, and I think Larry agrees with me here. The government should spend $4.05 trillion. I mean, that's what the, the, that's their revenue. That's how much, wh whether we like the policy or not. There are a lot of things I like about the government. There are a lot of things I, well, there's a couple of things I like about the government. There are a lot of things I don't like about 
about the government, but but we've authorized it via our elections to collect $4.05 trillion. That's the number. I mean, that's what they, now once again, you got, you know, lockbox Social Security and Medicare trust funds and, uh, you know, inflow and outflow and borrowing and debt and all these other sorts of things. Uh, you got gyrations of the market. I might accept all that. But, but, but the Fed has the capacity to say, I'll give an example here real quick, and then we got a couple of callers. So let's say a pandemic hits, and let's say there's an algorithm or there's some, some, some I don't know, supercomputer somewhere in Hillary Clinton's basement that says we can print, I mean, because of the expected unemployment, because of the expected disruption in the economy, this economy needs another, you know, $874 billion. I mean, that's the number that comes out of the computer. Maybe human beings are interacting with this algorithm, but, but, but there's a number that we need. There's a liquidity number we need or a liquidity amount we need to make sure this economy don't go into depression when we have all this economic slowdown. So we pump that much liquidity. And, and we've already made a deal that within nine months after the economic slowdown, as a result of the pandemic, we're, we're going to extract that money out of the system, but, but we're leaving it up to human beings. And as Rick Santelli said, the Fed has not become just the endorser, it's become the enabler. The government knows it can spend a trillion dollars a year it doesn't have because the Fed's never shown it won't purchase the debt. I mean, the Congress doesn't even seem to have to consider that when they're making well, these they, appropriating decisions. They don't. Decisions. They absolutely don't. I mean, it's like, hey, the Fed has always been there. They will always be there. And look, I'm the guy that wants to abolish the Fed, but be careful what you ask for. I mean, I understand that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the wild, wild west team when it comes to abolishing the Fed and and having more sound monetary policy. But I accept, as Larry just said, this is unbelievably complicated. I mean, if you ask one question, you know what you find out? There are 10 more you didn't ask. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, once again, just kind of be careful what you ask for. But but, but I think when you, when you look at the recent history of the Fed, it's hard to argue. And guys, the reason I'm talking about this, this is much bigger than a midterm. I mean, this is the financial future uh, for your kids and grandkids and great-great-grandkids. I mean, th- this is a monumental moment in American history, and it seems to me that there's a uh, kind of a reconciling within uh, of people in charge who have said, or who are saying, they will not say this publicly, they don't want to freak you out, but they're saying, hey, we, we've made some major, major mistakes since 2008, and this may be the moment in time that we try to correct some of those mistakes, zero percent interest rates for the majority of the 2010s, right? I mean, I showed Rev the 62-year yeah. chart. Yeah, very I mean, clear. It, it, it gyrates. It's up and down. It's 19% in 81 or two. It's it's, but it, but it hovers around what five, six, six and a half, four and a half, five, four, three, four and a half, five, six. I mean, it's kind of in there, back ebbing and flowing. You know, just, just kind of a little rippling tide, so to speak. And all of a sudden, in 2008, it goes to zero, and it stays there, and it stays there. And it stays there. And we quantitative ease. And we quantitative ease. And we wake up one day and, I mean, the, 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 the money supply is so outpaced, you know, our, our demands of the economy. And what happens to houses? The house goes from 180000 to 240000 240 to 290000 I mean, a lot, of, um, a lot of people believe there's a 20% correction coming to the housing market. There, there aren't all the subprime lending, not all the non-verified loans. But there's a tremendous asset correction that's going to have to happen in the housing sector. 
Um, I mean, if a if a $250,000 mortgage cost you in January of last year, or excuse me, in December of last year, what $180,000 mortgage cost you uh, today, th- there's got to be a correction, right? I mean, are people making that much more money? I mean, we've had some wage growth, but nowhere near what it takes to keep those things once again in equilibrium. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Morning, Mike. Just drop Mike. Uh, Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. The the thing about it, most of the transactions that are done are done by digits. You know, like the money supply in August, I think, was somewhere around 50 or 5,536,900,000 million dollars. If you can wrap your arms around that. But most of the money is used overseas because of the oil being trade in dollars. Most of the money in the United States is, is that when you go buy something with a debit card or a credit card, those are just transactions and X's and O's. So Friedman always said the only one that could create inflation was the federal government because, like you say, it's got the printing press. And the only tool they have for getting that money out of the circulation is the interest rate. Now, Paul Volcker, back in the late 70s and early 80s, he raised interest rates up to around 16 17%. But at the same time, Reagan cut taxes and cut regulations so that businesses could grow and start and add more people, add more supply to bring down, you know, the the unequal demand and supply thing. He oversupplied it, and then he ended up having to raise taxes a little bit because he cut them too much. But the interesting thing, they talked about Trump's tax cuts being so bad that they were going to 21% on businesses. It's mighty funny that right now the tax money going to the Treasury this year will be 20% of GDP. That's $5 trillion. So if you make it easier for corporations to pay taxes, they won't spend all that money trying to avoid the taxes. So this is one of the first times we're going to hit $5 trillion going to the Treasury this year. But, yeah, the only person or entity that can create inflation is the government, and they're the only ones that can solve that. Thank you, Joe. Well, I mean, we talked a, a while back about all the economists that work at the Fed. I have no idea how many economists at the Fed are Keynesian economists. I have no idea how many are modern monetary theorists. I don't have any idea. But the reason that, that I think um, Santelli said a second ago on CNBC that this is the death or demise of modern monetary theorists is they've always argued that, you know, the the risk of inflation is minimal as governments print and control their fiat currencies. I mean, if, if you owe yourself, so to speak, then you can, you, you can basically control price levels. And inflation is not going to rear its head in a way that, you know, classical liberal economists would believe it does. So when Santelli says, you know, this is the hard lesson learned by the modern monetary theorist, um, and you got to believe, Rev, that on, the, um, on staff at the Fed, I mean, there are, we did a, I read an article and we kind of talked about it a bit here, 
uh, about 85% of all the economists that worked at the Fed voted Democrat. Now, I'm not accusing those folks of being Keynesian economists. I'm certainly not accusing them of being modern monetary theorists. But that's the economic theory we espouse. I mean, that's what we, I mean, if you look at what the Fed is doing, it's hard to argue that modern monetary theory has not carried the day. And all of a sudden, there's rampant inflation, the highest inflation in 40, 50, 60 years. So if you're a modern monetary theorist and you're arguing that the risk of inflation is, or you considered it minimal because governments control the fiat currency of which they print, um, that's just not true. So, so there's a fallacy in that argument. There's a flaw in that model. And if there's any good to come out of this, and I don't know if there will or not, but if there's any good to come out of this, it may be, hey, that was a pretty crazy experiment we tried. I mean, there's a lot of egg on our face. There are a lot of financial distress and financial um, carnage that we've got to come by and clean up and, and do the best we can. But I mean, th- could this be the death of modern monetary theory? I don't have any idea. How many, how many economists work at the Fed ascribe to that notion? No idea. But that's the way we governed since 2008. The philosophy of economics that has been so prevalent in our monetary policy, the Fed, has been modern monetary theory. Whether you call yourself a modern monetary theorist or not, when you allow the Fed to do what it's done since 2008, you're behaving and acting under that economic construct. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. The argument I'm trying to make, it, it seems to me that some of the um, some of the talking heads, pundits, cheerleaders, pimps, and, and prostitutes on CNBC <laughs> are beginning to conclude that this is a mess. I mean, back in the summer that, you know, they were arguing about, well, I mean, you know, soft landing, transitory, uh, may not have been, it may have been a little stickier. I think there's a, there's a resolve now that, that is, th- this is nasty. I mean, this is going to be nasty. I've said it for a couple of years. How do we believe we can print this sort of, or, or do this sort of irresponsible spending and not answer at some point in time uh, to those facts and realities? And, and, and I'm not accusing anybody of being a modern monetary theorist. But we have governed as if the majority of Americans or the majority of economists who make policy on behalf of American government have ascribed to modern monetary theory, and it doesn't matter. I mean, if you own the fiat currency, it doesn't matter how much debt you have because at the end of the day, it's kind of sort of debt that you owe yourself. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike. Hey, I I thought I'd never get on. I thought y'all had sent me to Never Never Land or someplace. But uh, I'm listening to Larry. I was wanting to respond to Larry's uh, concept. I, I don't have an undergraduate degree in economics, but I have read a little bit on the subject, and I did take a couple of business courses. Uh, the uh, the whole thing about this is uh, you got to kind of a Heisenberg principle of uh, of uh, money. The velocity of money's got to be figured in there too, and that's been changing. Over the years, ever since uh, people learned how to write checks in the Middle Ages, and uh, the velocity of money makes a, a big difference, also in how much money is out there. But I, but the other thing, and I think you kind of addressed, but we really need to go at it like a uh, a slash and burn farmer is eliminating uh, regulations so that we can get product productivity up. Because when you produce things, when you make things that are useful, you know, like food and means of transportation and uh, uh, fuel to keep you warm in the wintertime, that uh, that kind of thing is going to uh, help any economy. 
And uh, sure, you're going to have bubbles, booms, and bust, but uh, it's uh, if your economy's not producing anything, then your uh, whole uh, economic uh, model, I don't care what it is, is going to crash and burn. And the fact that uh, all the other um, uh, euros and other uh, means of uh, exchange across the country and across the world are on fire, and uh, it seems like they're burning down to the waterline. We're not quite to the waterline yet. And uh, so it seems like the best ship on the water to put uh, to invest in. But it doesn't mean that we can't go under. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. You know, if you really think about modern monetary theory, you want to carry it out to the extreme. And I've read some of this in uh, some of the academic papers there's a there's kind of a mindset that we don't need government issued bonds. I mean, they're not necessary. Why do um, instead of issuing a trillion dollars in in treasury bonds for every trillion dollars we have in debt, why not just create the money directly without issuing any bonds? Right. I mean, we control the currency. I mean, the Fed is a. I mean, it's not an element of the government, but it kind of sort of is an enabler of the government. So um, here, here's a better question. And this is probably far too advanced for most of us. But but let's say that the abolish the Fed crew wins. I mean, let's say my crowd, the, the good guys win, and we abolish the Fed. What are, we, what, what are we going to replace the Fed with? Is it more political, less political? Is it a political um, organization or a political, is it is it an administrative position? I mean, is, is it a Department of Finance, Department of um, Fiat Currency, Department of Debt Reduction? I mean, we, we're going to name it something. It'll be a political pointy, more likely than not, confirmed by the Senate. I mean, I'm just making advising consent. And is I their mean, job just to do what Congress tells them I to do? I don't have any idea. I mean, it could be because the um, what we're told the beauty of the Fed today is it operates separate of the government. Santelli right. says it does, but it's been an enabler. I mean, it's enabled the government to do these things um, why has the Fed enabled the government? And here's a better question. What if the government were to appropriate $100 billion today and couldn't sell it? I mean, what if, what if they were to appropriate $100 billion in the name of green energy? I mean, the Democrats are in charge. They're enamored with green and renewable energy. So what if the federal government today said, in the name of making America safer relating to the burning uh, fossil fuels, the emittance of CO2, we're going to invest another $100 billion in green energy, and they issued that debt, uh, they appropriated that funds, and nobody bought the debt. Then what happens to that program? What happens to that plan? Is it, does it go away with? Are they allowed to continue? Do, do they just keep the books off, excuse me, keep the debt off the books somewhere? I mean, I, I don't have any idea. But, but the way we're doing it now, Rev, is reckless and careless and irresponsible. And I'm not pointing a finger at Democrats. I mean, right now I am because they appear to be more inclined to, to favor this sort of government action or reaction. But but the Republicans have never balanced the budget. I mean, the Republicans have done about as bad a job at fiscal restraint than the Democrats. I mean, how, you know, uh, think about the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. I mean, how many tax increases did we, how much more revenue did we take in while we were fighting those wars? I mean, we spent what, a couple of trillion dollars in Afghanistan? Where did that money come from? I mean, it was printed and borrowed. I mean, nobody raised taxes in the name of fighting a war to keep America safe. No, nobody sacrificed on behalf of that. I mean, you know, tax policy, I think there were tax cuts, if I'm not mistaken. 
I mean, is, did, did Bush implement a tax increase to make up with the $2 trillion no, they said of the which? oil would pay the oil well, I mean, out that's of Iraq what we were told for the war. Which is one of the biggest mistakes, Republican politics. And that's kind of the Bushies. I mean, that's what they're known for, globalist interventionist policies. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not over the weekend. Liz Cheney said that she's going to do everything in her power to stop Donald Trump from getting elected, to stop Kerry Lake from getting elected. And if Trump were the nominee, she would do everything she could to stop Donald Trump from getting elected. So she's saying, basically, nobody asked her, but she's like Scarborough. She wants to tell everybody, you know, <laughs> right. she's leaving the Republican Party. Um, later, lady, is what exactly. I say. Good she couldn't even win her own primary. Yeah, I mean, you know, the people in so Wyoming don't cares? like you, so who cares? But, but it is a struggle that the Republicans are having to deal with. And um, I don't know that the Republicans are in a position to lecture to anybody about debt. I mean, what did Donald Trump do? I mean, all you big Trump supporters, myself included, what did Trump do about the debt? I can tell you what he did. He increased it about like every other president has. I mean, I like his policies better. I think deregulation leads to growth. I think there are some things that Trump did. I think the um, the tax cuts were probably, in my humble opinion, a little too heavily weighted toward corporate America. But but Donald Trump was a, a friend of, you know, patriotism and this um this not interventionist, you know, America first mindset. But there was never any conversation that I can remember that addressed the debt. You know, how do we how do we um how do we change the trajectory of the spending curve? How do we put Social Security and Medicare on a more sustainable path forward? I mean, that's conservatism, isn't it? I mean, let's talk about the conservative element within the Republican Party. Well, I mean, one of the um one of the bedrocks of conservatism is financial responsibility and fiscal restraint. Did Trump really do anything in relation to making sure the government's books were more balanced? Uh, I think he funded. One of the early, early, you know, pandemic relief plans, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the first CARES Act was a result of Donald Trump. Uh, We spent about $5 trillion in the name of pandemic relief. About 40% of that money was spent by the Republicans. Now, the Republicans will argue, yeah, but we did it when it had to be done. And, and you know, the um, at the time, when it was time to take the foot off the gas pedal, the Democrats simply didn't do it. They saw it as, as an opportunity to expand government. Well, guys, that's what they do. I mean, I think most Democrats will admit that's what they do. They, every, give, if you give Democrats a chance to expand government and confiscate more of the private sector's wealth and place in the hands of bureaucrats and bureaucracies, they're going to normally do that than not. So, so you know, t- t- to me, it's pretty lame to suggest this is all about the Democrats that the Democrats are the modern monetary theorist, the Democrats are the Keynesian economists, the Democrats are the one who allowed the debt to get so out of control. Um, go back and look at the Bush regime. Go back and look at um, the Trump regime. I mean, th- there was never any attempt at all made by Republicans to address any of the deficit spending that we were doing year after year, presidential term after after presidential term. And you got to believe, Rev, uh, I don't care how liberal or conservative you may be i mean all of us with, with with average intelligence have to believe that at some point in time spending money that you don't have is going to catch up with you i mean i don't care if it's the preeminent superpower on the planet or not at some point in time if you keep spending whether you're in the public or private sector if you keep spending money you don't have there's going to be some consequence on some day at some point in time, and maybe, just maybe, this is the beginning of that. That's This is why I'm more concerned about the fundamentals of this bubble 
than I was the housing bubble. That if you, I mean, if you're in the real estate business, if you're a home builder or a property developer or a banker in the mortgage sector, I mean, that, that was very specific to your business. Now, it had contagion, no doubt about it. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's tentacles reached out far and wide into the economy. We don't have Lehman Brothers anymore. We don't have Bear Stearns anymore. Um, we don't have Wachovia anymore. I mean, there, there were a lot of big, big financial um, entities that went down as a result of that because the housing sector is so big. This is the everything bubble. I mean, this is not the housing bubble. This is the everything bubble. And... I mean, all of a sudden, we can't tolerate 3% Fed rate? Really? I mean, the economy's going off the deep end into a deep depression because the Fed fund rate is going somewhere north of 3%, and we're going to take $95 billion of liquidity that never had any business being in the economy anyway? Here's a good question to ask on a Monday morning at 740. You ready? What would we have done? In response to COVID, had we not had the Federal Reserve or the ability to deficit spend? I mean, I've always pondered that. I still think a lot about that. Some of the real bright friends of mine, I asked that question. You know what their response always is? Hmm. Hmm. Hadn't thought of that. I mean, put, 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 okay, we don't have a Fed. We can't deficit spend. There's a pandemic that we believe is dangerous and deadly and, and threatening to the way of life, our safety, our, our well-being, our health. I mean, it's death. I mean, it's not just, you know, a bad report card. It's not a bad quarter of GDP growth. I mean, this could kill people. But we don't have a Fed. We don't have the ability to print money. What would we have done? What would Donald Trump, what would Joe Biden, what would Congress, what would these governors have done what the school districts have done, what would local governments have done had we not had this ace in the hole that we've overplayed? Because we didn't just uh, we didn't just play the ace we had in the hole. We pulled a counterfeit ace out of our pocket, went out of our shoe, went out of our sock, went out of our billfold, and we just cheated reality. We just absolutely cheated reality. And people ask, well, why aren't we talking about Liz Cheney? Who cares about Liz Cheney when you've got $31 trillion in debt? Who gives a rat's rear end about, you know, a, a house race in upstate New York when we're curbing energy production by 20 or 25 percent? And guys, I'm telling you, nothing's forever. And if we don't address our energy policy and if we don't get honest with ourselves about our debt situation, nothing else matters. I'm convinced of that. I mean, there will always be these debates on the periphery. Freehold believes this, and Reb believes that, and I believe a little bit of this, and we debate abortion, and we debate gun legislation, and we debate the, you know, all these other nuanced issues in American government. But I can tell you, if we get these two wrong, this country is fundamentally different on the other side. I notice your concern has been growing over the well, last... I mean, I, I'm convinced. I mean, I, look, I, I see deregulation and energy exploration. I mean, I could see a short-term recommitment to fossil fuels that puts us back on a, a sustainable path forward with energy. I mean, it, it doesn't happen in a day or two or three, but it doesn't take 20 or 25 years. If we don't put together some sort of plan that addresses our reckless spending and our federal debt... Your kids and my kids will grow up in a fundamentally different country than you and I did. The dollar will devalue to the tune of 30, 40%. The standard of living 
will decline by a, about that same percentage. It may not be one for one, but something similar to that. And we will be the first generation that left this country worse off than we found it because we couldn't say no to government programs and, and borrowed money to make us feel good about today without worrying about tomorrow. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. I want to look real quick on CNBC. And the only reason I'm on CNBC is because the Dow futures are down 155. That's one half of 1%. Um, there, there's some that believe that the S&P was at 3685 today. Uh, it'll touch 31 or 200. Um, that's another 20 or 30% decline. I mean, we're teetering in bear market territory. Um now, now, once again, I don't think the stock market is the great, you know, um, it doesn't define what is happening in the economy or not. And uh, and I think the stock market, asset appreciation in the stock market, well, I mean, you saw Santelli say a second ago um, that there was opportunity to make money and not much risk at all. Investing should be a strategy. And, and you know, Larry asked earlier, what is the right amount of liquidity to operate and function in the economy? I've thought of it a lot like this. What should a steak at your favorite steakhouse cost? I mean, what is that steak worth? Well, I mean, when the economy's rolling and quantitative easing and, you know, 0% interest rates, it, it adds uh, an unrealistic view of economic activity. In other words, um, the house is worth more. The used car market. Remember, we saw the tremendous increase in used cars or used trucks on the Internet. People were, I mean, new car dealers were signing uh, $10,000 dealer fees. You know, I have no idea what that means, except that, you know, we only have a limited number of vehicles and a lot of people are trying to buy it. Uh, but because once again, COVID relief funds and, you know, extra money shows up in your checking account, you need a new car, what better time to buy it than now? But but I think Larry's point kind of plays into my, the, the question I've asked myself for probably 25 years, if, if the economy was perfect, I mean, if we had supply and demand exactly right, what would an advertisement on this radio show cost? What would a steak at your favorite steakhouse cost? What would a football ticket cost? I mean, if we had realistic debt, I mean, if the per, if the private and public debt in America today were reasonably financed. Now, I don't know who gets to decide that. You know, do, do we have a modern monetary theorist, uh, economist? Do we have a, a neoclassical liberal economist, a conservative economist, and a Keynesian economist? And, you know, they walk into a bar and sit down at a table and, you know, have this two-hour conversation. And out of that two-hour conversation, they come out and say, hey, the economy needs this much liquidity. But if you get it right, if you find equilibrium between supply and demand, then a football ticket is, is worth exactly what that football ticket is worth. But if you begin distorting or, or, or manipulating supply and demand, then the ticket is not fair priced. I mean, it's either overpriced or underpriced. And I just don't think we've attempted to create equilibrium in the economy because politicians would have had to say no to certain projects. That uh, They would have had to go home and say, hey, I couldn't get this funded. I couldn't get that funded. We didn't have enough money. What do you mean you didn't have enough money? You guys have $4 trillion. I mean, surely that's enough money to build a bridge or, or pave a road or or build a convention center. You, you see where I'm headed? But but we've got these, these, these stark financial realities that we're having to deal with and address, and, and I don't think we're dealing with it nor addressing. And, and I want to say this. I never thought we would voluntarily do this. I mean, I can assure you uh, the conversation on CNBC today would rather be about, you know, what will Dow be priced at a year from now? 
You know, how much more will Microsoft value add? I, I, that, that is something that they if, would if much rather in, do the cheerleading stuff. If things are in equilibrium, how much should money cost? Well, I mean, a dollar should be worth a dollar. But how much should it cost to borrow? Well, I mean, I, I don't know that. I mean, that, that's a good question. What what should what should a 30-year mortgage be? What should a three-year, four-year, five-year car payment be? What, what should a revolving credit line be? If we lived in a place of economic equilibrium. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. So are we clear or are we not clear on quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, modern monetary theory, Keynesian economies? I mean, surely we have gotten all of that figured out. <laughs> I would say not clear. Thank okay, you very what, much. What is the biggest issue you have? I mean, you're not as studious as I am on this particular yeah. issue. You're smarter than I am, just not mm-hmm. quite as studious to try and understand it. But, but. Do you notice that there is a sense of alarmism that I have about where we are and and where I think we're headed? I have absolutely noticed that your concern has been increasing over the last several, I don't know, we talk about this a lot. Several years. These issues are not are not foreign to discussion around here. Uh, But I do notice that, I mean, you're using some pretty aggressive uh, descriptions on what you expect may be coming. Well, I mean, it, it seems to me that the pundits, pimps, prostitutes, talking heads, sunshine pumpers at CNBC are beginning to realize that the jig is up. I mean, you I, know, mean, I the, start hearing th- them use language like hard landing, and that's a change. Well, I mean, you've, you're not hearing transitory. You're not hearing soft landing. It's right. more hard landing. Goldman has revised its its report. Look, guys, you can't spend. I don't care how blessed you think you are how chosen you think this nation is that there are certain practical realities that you cannot escape from and one is spending a trillion dollars a year that you don't have you can spend a billion or two or three or four and make it up the next year but but you can't spend a trillion dollars annually every year that you don't have but begin quantitative easing and manipulate and distort the economy as we have and not expect there to be some sort of consequence on the other side. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable to me that there are people much brighter than I that do believe we can escape reality, that we can wiggle off the hook. And Rev, I believe before COVID and when we were at 17 or $18 trillion, I mean, if we had created a plan moving forward, that allowed for fiscal restraint and determination of both parties to keep the budget balanced and and grow the economy, deregulation, uh, some of the um, fossil fuel exploration. I mean, I think there was a way to, to kind of save the day. But once we decided during the pandemic to do what we did and leave interest rates as, uh, you know, as low as we did in a growing economy, that was the unusual part of this. Zero percent interest rates and the markets are on fire. The economy's growing and we kept interest rates at zero and we continue to quantitative ease. And I just I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert, but but I'm not a dummy. And when you start taking that recipe, you got to believe that there's going to be a day that we have big regrets for what we did. And I do believe that politically we've kind of we've convinced ourselves politically that you know, not having to deal with a recession is, is more in my political best interest. And of course it is. I mean, who wants to run for office when you're in power uh, and, and the economy's in recession? I mean, nobody wants to do that. So the luck of the draw, you know, the economic cycles time with your trying to get reelected. So if we can delay, if we can put off, if we can do things that make absolutely no sense, but they help it or they help make the conditions that you get elected be more favorable, then why not do it? And, and that's the point I'm trying to make. And it seems to me, and then we'll move to our guests. It seems to me 
that there is a kind of a realization and a, an attempt to reconcile the, the grave mistakes we've made and, and what we're going to have to endure to get to a better place. And I, I just think the next couple of years are going to be unbelievably difficult. Mm. And, and in relation to what be, what we become accustomed to and what appears to be headed our way uh, to economic reality. That's just my opinion. Ouch. Take it for what it's worth. Once again, what, what do I say? I'm a college dropout with a town with no stoplight. Take it for what for what it's worth. Hey, um, talking about running for office in midterms and election cycles, we have with us on the phone, if I'm not mistaken, Sterling McDermott. He is a Republican candidate for South Carolina House of Representative District 54. Sterling, good morning. How are you? Good morning, sir. How are you? I am doing well. Um, before I have any questions, tell us a little bit about who you are and what motivates you to want to be a member of the House of Representatives. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, I live in Wallace with my wife and three smaller children, and um, I am running for office because I want to help. Um, I'm a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, I'm a business owner. Um, I'm a retired highway contractor, and um, I, I just want to help. I'm, I'm stepping up, and I want to help. Sterling, how do you think you can best help? What sort of skill sets do you think being in the business world, being in the private sector? I mean, I can relate to that. That was kind of my claim to fame when I ran for office, being in the private sector. would like to take some of those uh, attributes and implement that value into the system of government. But specifically, what do you think you could add that would benefit the citizens of South Carolina? Yes, sir. I, um, I graduated from school. I went into paving business. I made payroll on the hood of my truck. I wound up with hundreds of employees, millions of dollars of machinery, and um, I know how to get things done. Um, I know how to make quality, common-sense decisions, and I think that's what we need. Um, I've, uh, in the business world, I've, I've, I've learned how to deal with um, problems and, um, and solve them successfully. And I, I think that's what I can bring to the table, Ken. Sterling, what do you see as some of the major problems? I think number one is infrastructure. Um, District 54 is in absolute disarray. We have bridges that have been out over five years. Um, our highways are crumbling. Uh, and, and there's no foreseeable end to this. Um, I've dealt with DOT all my life. Um, I know how to work with people and get things done. Um, we need recreation. There's almost nothing for children to do in District 54. Um, and if they don't have something quality to do, sometimes they turn to other things, you know. Being from Wallace, I grew up in a little town, Pamplico. I can relate to some of the small town struggles and problems in America today. Is there anything you can think of we can do, Sterling, as it relates to government to empower, resurrect, revive rural America? Yes, sir. I think tourism is um, is a really big um, draw for us. Um, I think that we don't realize what we have. We have what the big city does not have, Ken. We have a great place, low taxes, mild weather. Um, it, I, we love the PD. And um, 
I think measured growth is, um, I think that's the way to go. I think that's the way to go. When you look at some of the challenges of rural America, recruiting teachers, offering a kid in a rural setting, a quality education is a struggle. Is that a priority of yours? Uh, what would you like to see happen to the quality uh, of public education in rural South Carolina? Yes, sir. That That's a um, particular item of interest to me. Um, I think we need to pay teachers. Um, if you and I are in business, um, we get the best employees when we pay them. Um, we, we have the money. We just need to make sure that we spend it in a wise manner. Um, uh, it, it's always amazed me. We'll build a $60 million school building, but we pay a teacher $38,000. Um, I, I think we've got the cart and horse completely backwards. Um, you get quality people when you pay them. Sterling, what can we do uh, as a government to invest in rural America that makes it more encouraging or enticing for Fortune 500 companies? And I'm talking about economic development. I'm recruiting high-quality industry, high-quality commerce to some of these rural areas um, to provide more opportunity. I mean, obviously, got to have an educated workforce. You've addressed that to some degree. But we've seen unequal growth in South Carolina. We've seen certain pockets um, grow as fast as anywhere in America, and we've seen others kind of left behind. What What is your notion or idea to, I don't want to say level the playing field, that's not the role, the role of government, but to encourage growth in some of these um, places that aren't keeping up with the rest of the state? Yes, sir. The um, In District 54 in particular, um, we have a lot going for us. We've got the river. We've got um, power available to everyone. Um, we, we, but what we need to do, sir, what we need to do is we need a Republican legislator from District 54. What we've been doing is not working. We have a supermajority in the South Carolina House of Representatives, um, South Carolina Senate. Both of our United States senators are Republicans. Our congressman, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general. We are not going to succeed in Columbia without a Republican legislator. And um, I, I think that I can bring that to the table with my business experience and um, being in the majority in Columbia, um, keeping our ear to the ground and pushing to um, to get industry. And I, I think that, you know, you said something about the school system. I think we need a partner with NETC. And while we have the kids, um, you know, they had shop when I was in school. I think we need to teach these guys how to elect electrical work, plumbing, um, heat and air conditioning. Um, my, my plumber makes more money than my doctor. You know, um, I, I, I think that is something that we have not really worked on and, and we need to focus on that and bring it into play. Sterling, obviously Wallace is a part of district 54. What else? I mean, give me some idea of what the bounds are. So if any listener, um, maybe, you know, some folk don't keep up with it like you and I do, but they may not know exactly where they. I mean, they they know where they live, but in proportion or in relation to the uh, to the district lines. W- what area are we talking about here? Yes, sir. It's um, pretty much um, Marlboro County in its entirety, with the exception of McCall. The town of McCall was taken out in the in the last um, allocation. <clears throat> so it's Marlboro County. Um, it's one third of Darlington County. It goes all, all the way to the city limits of Darlington. 
Um, it goes across the river, Brock's Mill, Shiraz has been added, uh, the truck route, Highway 52, Cash, Country Club Acres, all the way out to Society Hill and including Society Hill. So it's 33,000 people. So okay. it, it's, a big area. it's a big area. And right now it's a Democrat in, in that seat. Yes, sir, it is. Okay. Um, if eight, someone listening. Eight, eight years. I, I thought so. If someone listening wants to help Sterling, wants to help his campaign, be a part of, um, you know, volunteering or supporting. I mean, there are a lot of different ways people can help. Is there a Facebook page, a website? How can they communicate with you or your campaign? Yes, sir. We have a Facebook page. Um, we have a, we keep, uh, if they can follow me, they can, um, they can see everything we're doing. We had a hot dog giveaway this weekend. The, I, I tell you, the volunteers and the feedback is overwhelming. I am, I am truly humbled, Ken, at the people that have helped us. Um, but it's Sterling McDermott, um, M-C-D-I-A-R-M-I-D on Facebook. And um, there, there's postings at least one every day, sometimes two or three. Fair enough. We wish you well, my man. If we can do anything to help, let us know. Yes, sir, Ken. Thank you so much. Thank you very Have much. A great day. You do the same. Sterling McDermott, Republican candidate, South Carolina House of Representatives District um, 34, wanting to make a difference. 54. And I, 54. 54, I'm sorry. I, I tend to be a little more um, favorable toward those in business, especially those in the trucking and transportation mm. um, industry and sector. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Morning, Ashley. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, first off, I would like to thank T.J. Joy and the Sheriff's officers for their quick reaction time and show of force uh, down in my area Saturday. They did a fantastic job. I commend them on it. Um, secondly, going back to uh, the manipulation you were talking about in the economy, I think a, a, a contributing factor to what's happening now is the is the manipulation of the inflation rate for the last 30 years. Uh, I think that just compounds the problems we're having now. I think that it uh, it does a injustice for 30 years ago where a house cost $50,000, now it costs 350000 because they've never showed the true inflation rate. And that's all politics, too. And I'll take uh, y'all's comments off the air. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. But that, that's the question I've always asked myself. And I, I've got, I mean, I can ask myself that question. I just can't answer it because <laughs> I don't have any, I don't have any idea how to go down that road. But, but if, and I go back to Larry's comments, I mean, what if we had exactly the right amount of money in the economy that needs to be there? I mean, if we quantitative ease a little bit, tighten a little bit, interest rates were set, you know, Rev said earlier, you know, what should, uh, what should the interest rate be for the economy to perform in the, in the most fair and equitable way? And I'm not talking about max or min. I'm not talking about the, the, you know, the best economy ever, the minimum. I'm talking about where the economy should operate. We're going to have ebbs and flows, right? I mean, we all agree to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to have certain things about the economy and economic activity that, that are going to be different. I mean, if, if they um talking about the government is the only entity that can uh, inspire inflation. Well, yeah, but, but you can also have a late freeze in Florida kills all the oranges and, and a big uptick in the increase of orange juice, right? I mean, that's inflationary, but that's a natural reaction to economic cycles. I mean, that's to be expected. Everybody understands, whether you like it or not, everybody understands when half the orange crop in America gets killed, you're going to probably pay more for orange juice. I mean, that is a natural economic cycle. That is a supply and demand function of our economy. 
But but what if we had it right? What if there were just the right amount of liquidity, just the right amount of public and private sector borrowing, just the right amount of government involvement or government intrusion in the economy? What would a 3,000-square-foot house in Sumter cost? What would a an SUV, a mid-level SUV in Orangeburg at a dealership, what would it cost you? See, I don't think we have any idea what, because we so distorted the economy. We so manipulated the supply and demand factor and all these other rules of economic activity. And it's, it's become normalized. It's become expected. Explain to me why a pickup is $90,000 in America today, and there's still a market for it. I mean, is that good for America? I'm not beating up on GM, nor Ford, nor Toyota. Uh, none, none of these manufacturers, I get it. I mean, they, they don't make the rules. Uh, some do. <laughs> they have a heavy hand in making the rules. I mean, they have a lot of lobbying influence exactly. in that world. But, I mean, you wake up one day and a, and a Ford truck or a GMC truck is $90,000. How many Americans can afford a $90,000 pickup? How many Americans should be able to afford a $90,000 pickup? Or is the better argument... Well, under normal economic conditions, what should that $90,000 pickup be? I mean, what should the cost be? And I think we've allowed government to so distort and, and abnormalize the, the economy, and we don't know what to do about it. I mean, it's, it's almost like the, the Fed has become the, um, the crack provider, and we're the crack addict. And when the Fed says, hey, we may have to raise the Fed fund rate north of 3%, which is still historically low. I mean, it's ridiculously low in the grand scheme of things, but we lose our minds. And we talk about asset depreciation. We talk about recession. You can't afford your home. You can't afford this and that and the other. And it's just, and that's why I'm so negative, Red. I mean, that's why I'm not optimistic at all is because there's so much unraveling that has to happen. I mean, if we're going to get back to a a genuine um, economy of reality, that there's so much unwinding that is going to have to happen, unraveling that is going to happen. happen. There's going to be a lot of losers. I mean, how many businesses are, are hanging on by a thread when interest rates are two and a half, three percent? I mean, when they're borrowing money at three percent and they're still not making a lot of money, the, the fact is the widgets ain't good enough for the marketplace. I mean, you got to make a better widget, but they've been able to kind of skirt by on not making that good a widget because some of the borrowing money and finance charge associated with borrowing that money kind of allows them to keep their head above water. And we've got to get back to a normalized, I don't know whether interest rates in America should. How do you find this equilibrium when you have influence in power in government, for example, that are saying we need to cut all fossil fuels? I mean, energy but is you such can't. A, I mean, you're, you're not going to get Energy there. is such a big part of the economy, there, right? There is no way. I mean, if we but those believe, forces are fighting every bit if, of if we believe that regulation and government intervention is going to lead to a better economy, we'll have an either worse situation 10 years from now than we have today. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 Our listeners have come to expect that I have the answer to everything. There's some things that I don't have the answer to. One of the few things is the weather. And anytime I hear European model, American model, Watch I don't out. think Victoria's Secret anymore. I think <laughs> hurricane, and I get real concerned. Hugo was the game changer in my life. You're darn right. I, I have almost two hurricane lives pre-Hugo and post-Hugo and post-Hugo when someone says European model, I'm like the deer in the woods. Like my head just lifts up. Like what did he say? Did I hear somebody say European uh, model? Jamie Arnold is chief meteorologist at WMBF. He's with us this morning. So Jamie, there is. Good morning, sir. How are you? 
I'm very well. How are you? We are doing well, and I hope you're telling us nothing to see here, but it looks like this thing has a, a chance to affect our weather by the end of the week, over the weekend. Walk us through the progression from your expert perspective, please. All righty. Well, I do think we are going to see some impacts here, but I do want to say also sort of right off the bat, I don't think we're going to see a big hurricane rolling right up the coast. I think we're talking probably more indirect impacts, especially uh, let's say the Thursday night through about Saturday time frame. Uh, the issue with this storm is uh, it's really slow uh, and it's going to slow down even more, especially by the time we get into the Tuesday, Wednesday time frame. It's a hurricane now. Um, it's going to rapidly intensify through the rest of the day today and into tomorrow. And it's forecast to become a Category 4 hurricane there in the central Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and then if you're kind of familiar with Florida, it's going to work its way up to around perhaps the Tampa area. Uh, Tampa is in a really precarious situation. They could take a direct hit, uh, maybe just north of Tampa, maybe just south of Tampa. Uh, either way, once it starts to get near Florida, uh, that's where things really start to get complicated. One the steering winds are going to kind of slow this thing down, and a slow-moving or stalled hurricane is even more difficult to predict. Then it's going to start working its way inland over Florida, maybe into South Georgia as we head into late Friday, into Saturday. Um, but that's also when it starts to interact with a front that we're going to have stalled offshore, uh, and things just get really complicated. But again, it doesn't at this point uh, look like it's going to just beeline across Florida and come up the coast. So that spares us from like a direct, you know, hurricane kind of a hit. But I do think with the uh, remnants moving through maybe South Georgia, Central or Western South Carolina, interacts with that front, I do think we see a good bit of rain. I think it's breezy, not seeing anything that says damaging winds, but certainly some gusty winds around here. Uh, and even an isolated tornado threat, depending on how everything kind of sets up. Uh, but we're still talking about four or five days for some things to change, so I still want us to keep an eye on it. Jamie, last question, and this is part of the, the weirdest way to ask it, but the only way I know how to ask it. When does it get clearer? I mean, is it is is 72 hours, is 48 hours? I mean, w when do you guys who study and understand these things much at a, at a much greater level than I would, w w what are we waiting on? How many variables are there? And when do you start sensing with some clarity what we can expect and when? Um, it's a really slow process. You know, late last week, it actually looked like it could cross Florida and come up as a hurricane. We kind of focused that away from that scenario over the weekend. And now the, you know, where it goes after Florida is still a little bit fuzzy. So I think by the time we get into about Wednesday, we'll be able to really start putting some details onto how much rain, how great of a tornado threat, how windy it may get around here, uh, should be around the Wednesday time frame. Once it starts moving again, it's supposed to slow down, stall probably in that late Tuesday, Wednesday time frame. After it starts to pick up that movement again, then we'll really start to fine tune things probably by late Wednesday. Okay. I just wrote down on my cheat sheet here that on Wednesday, Jamie Arnold is going to tell us exactly, exactly, <laughs> precisely where the hurricane is going to hit and exactly what we can expect. Hey, we may check back with you as the week progresses. Appreciate your time. It's invaluable to have someone like you. I'm um, on standby, willing to help us uh, kind of work through this unknown. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you so much, and I'll, I'll be here all week. Absolutely. Jamie Arnold, Chief Meteorologist, WMBF, giving us a um, his perspective on what we think we can expect 
um, during the week. Here's all I'll and, say. And not to minimize, by the way, you know, uh, property and life and things like that that are in the way of the storm. But, you know, we have some you know, sports, high well, school I mean, sports, college sports this weekend. Yeah, human life. Obviously, I mean, obviously, human life is the most important. Obviously. Property. Eh. <laughs> I mean, we got the Braves and Mets. We got the Gamecocks and SC State. We've got Clemson and NC State. I mean, we got a lot of things kicking in our neck of the woods that we need to make sure uh, remain on schedule. Um, I just got a note from a friend of mine said that they're thinking about canceling the Carolina football game this Saturday at noon. And I just responded, you better ask Dawn Staley if you can or not. Uh, you know, she's Ouch. the one that runs everything in Columbia. And you got to let her decide whether <laughs> they're going to play football this Saturday or not. But we'll check back with Jamie for our listeners' sake. I mean, it's a big deal. It's kind of coming in through the back door. I mean, the majority of our concern has historically been, you know, a hurricane coming onto the coast of, of the Carolinas and our, our Grand Strand being impacted as a result of, and then we being a bit inland of that. But this seems to be working its way kind of via the Gulf up the uh, the western coast of, um, of Florida into the Panhandle through Georgia and eventually make its way or impact in some way, shape, or form the Carolinas. So we'll certainly reach out to Jamie, maybe even tomorrow, I mean, I think he said, and I read that, you know, today and tomorrow are kind of a holding pattern. Wednesday is when these several weather forces begin uh, dictating or determining where exactly this thing goes. But, man, when I hear European model since Hugo, my ears just perk up. I'm like, did I hear somebody say European model? <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure I understand, you know, what's going and on Last here. week was the third, was it the 33rd? anniversary of her I think it was Hugo. yeah because um as you get toward the end of september you start wondering whether you're gonna wiggle off the hook uh this year but yeah. uh you, you never do there's always the threat of a of a hurricane hey bruce mittman if i'm not mistaken is on the phone with us bruce is a um he's the president of community broadcasters ceo uh, ceo of community broadcasters but also a um a, a person with passionate political opinions and um and bruce feels i don't want to speak for him but he's in the minority in Boston, and um, and there was something that happened recently in Boston that the national media is not choosing to uh, to report on. And uh, we know the national media how one sided yeah, they are. Surprise. So um so so Bruce is going to enlighten us on something that happened in his home state, his hometown, his stomping ground, so to speak, that we need to begin trying to raise some national awareness. Bruce, good morning. How are you? Uh, morning, Ken. Thank you for allowing me to interrupt you your show and uh i hope the hurricane doesn't hit us well we hope so as well but let's talk a little bit about Don, donnie palmer and what happened yeah. in in uh, in massachusetts over the weekend so donnie palmer is a uh black republican running for congress uh against uh, ayanna presley who's obviously part of the squad and the squad was in somerville at an event um a closed door event at a theater talking issues, and Donnie was outside demonstrating about uh, the lack of awareness around the death of the uh, young man in North Dakota who was run over uh, by the Democrat-leaning um, driver who uh, was out outraged politically over his uh, positions. So he was out there demonstrating, uh, also campaigning for himself, and one of his uh, associates was filming the thing, and uh, five guys came up to him and started beating the hell out of uh, the guy filming him, uh, telling him to leave, get lost. And then Donnie had to go in there to try to stop the, the fight. Donnie, by the way, was a former professional boxer, so he's a big guy. Uh, and then he went in to try to stop it, and then they started beating the hell out of Donnie. Uh, 
Um, so, you know, my annoyance is that uh, it's barely picked up in the Herald today. Um, you know, nobody's picked it up anywhere else. If this happened to a Democrat anywhere, um, you would it would be uh, international news. Um, and it's not that I, you know, I want international news. It's just that we need to we, we need to stop this violence against Republicans. Um, and it continues and it's escalating. And I think if we don't put, you know, some sort of spotlight on it, uh, it's going to become a very dangerous situation if it continues. Bruce, what about the Boston Globe? I mean, that's one of the major national newspapers. I mean, and, and media websites. I mean, what have they had to say and how critical have they been about the events? Well, they've made it sound like it was some brawl uh, outside uh, it, the uh, event. They really didn't position it as though it was a political um, attack on Donnie or his associates, but more a brawl. And it's and it's what happens um, with most of the, uh, the the left-leaning media in the country. Uh, they they refuse to take an objective view of this. There's no objective lens on what's going on. And uh, they create, you know, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, fake um, event uh, in order to meet some uh, narrative that they want, which is that it had nothing to do with politics. And, and it's just, I believe, I really am concerned with the uptick in violence, especially here's a congressional candidate having to protect someone getting, getting beat up. And there's absolutely not a mention of it anywhere. And Bruce, that's got to be frustrating as someone who is right of center. I mean, you're a very you're a very reasonable man, but you're very conservative in your political beliefs and biases. But but to be in a in a state and city that appears to be so one sided, um, we we don't deal with that down here. I mean, it's red state South Carolina. But but you right. you you are you are somewhat of a certain political disposition, outnumbered um, overwhelmingly. But there are people in Boston, there are people in Massachusetts who believe in the conservative way of governance. They just don't, they're not heard from. Well, you know, uh, Trump got over a million votes here in the state. You know, people don't, you know, it was only represented 35% of the vote, but it still was over a million votes. And the Globe, which is owned by John Henry, now here's a guy who owns the Red Sox, is, uh, you know, is a major financial manipulator. You know, I'm sure if we looked into his background, we'd find that, you know, he probably manipulated uh, the loss of thousands of jobs in order for him to become a multi-billionaire. Um, but, of course, he owns the globe, so therefore he's he can, you know, print what he wants, say what he wants, represent what he wants. And, it, and it's becoming a closed society to anybody that has an alternative view. And so I a little frustrated, so I said, okay, let's at least – Build some awareness. I, I I hope you put the video up uh, on your on your social page or, uh, or or on our site somewhere because I think it's important for people to see what happened. We will certainly yeah, we'll do, do that. We'll absolutely do that, and um, appreciate you updating us. And uh, and once again, I mean, North Dakota has a situation. You know, now Boston has a situation, and the media refuses to cover it. I mean, they just refuse to um, be fair and impartial about reporting, which is the job of of journalism in America, and I get real discouraged by it, but I hear Bruce's willingness to fight and engage, and I mean that. I guess we feed off one another. It motivates all of us to, to stay in the fray. It's worth it. 
Um, and the one thing, Bruce, they want us to do is roll over and go home. You're not doing that, nor am I. Good. And let's continue to do the good work that you and Dave do there. And thanks for your time. Sorry to just interrupt your show. I know it's not a local issue, but I thought it was an important issue. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate it, my man. Have a good week. All right. You too. Bruce Mittman, uh, CEO and president of Community Broadcasters, calling in, uh, expressing his concern. And uh, we've not talked much about this, but uh, in North Dakota, well, let's take a break. I don't want to get too far behind. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Four three six six one zero nine three seven. So is that a reference to hurricanes, or is that a reference to the greatest American rock band ever? Well, as a reference to our discussion on Friday, okay. where did you, we conclude anything? Uh, I no, we okay. did not. If, if, if you're arguing that CCR is the greatest American no, rock I band, ever. no, the, the, no, the, the writer of the article I read right. in Rolling Stone made the argument that CCR is the greatest American rock and roll band ever. Right. We debated that. We debated it. During the 9 did, did o'clock you, hour on Friday. Did you stake out an opinion that you well, believe? I mean, no, but I went back over the weekend and read that they had six platinum albums in 31 months. Six platinum albums pretty impressive. in 31 months. Um, they were a great American rock and roll band. Um and it probably should have been John Fogarty and Clearwater Clear, Clear Revival because he was such a dominant force. Uh, within the band let's go to the phone here is cocky mike in the pd hello mike hello gentlemen how are y'all today hey i got a question for you since you were talking about football and tailgating and stuff like this okay and i and i want your opinion because I, i'm i'm getting feedback in both directions i went to the game saturday the carolina game saturday and i do what i always do which is i go around to other people's tailgate and i enjoy spending time with them so i walk into a friend's tailgate saturday and I look, and there's a guy sitting there for a Carolina Gamecock UNC Charlotte game wearing full Clemson garb. And my, mm-hmm. I don't know the guy. Never met him, never seen him, don't know him, didn't know what relationship or connection he had to my buddy who is, you know, I know, you know, to be a donor and spend a lot of money. And I see this guy in Clemson garb. My first reaction, I'll clean it up, is, oh, man, what a butthole. And so I started talking to people, and I put this on Facebook. Who who does that? Who wears who wears a non-game, you know, non-participant shirt into a situation like that? I'll give you an example. My one of my very best friends is Todd Stewart. He owns Derby Street Sporting Goods. Lifetime Gamecock. We partied together many a times. Todd's daughter is a scholarship 
cheerleader for Clemson. So Todd is mandates that he has to go to Clemson games now. <laughs> well, of course, you know, to support his daughter. And he wears either a neutral or orange shirt. And he would never walk into a you know Memorial Stadium with a Carolina shirt on for that. Am I being a jerk by saying that guy's a jerk? Or what's the deal? Why would you wear a Clemson shirt that you're going to stand out? Now, here's the caveat to this. The tickets that I think he most likely sat in are, are high-dollar seats. They're donor seats. And I, I brought my brother-in-law one year past, who was a Georgia fan from Georgia, I brought him into the zone, and I told him, I said, you got to wear neutral colors. He said, I don't have a bit of problem. Because once I explained to him, that's a high-dollar section, high-donor section. He said, well, I don't have a bit of problem with that, Mike. And then he watched the game. We had a good time. We tailgated. We parked. So tell me something. Am I being a jerk by calling this guy a jerk, or is that guy a jerk by doing what he did? Hmm. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't have done it. I mean, I, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. So Roger calls in. Roger listens. Roger and I are good friends. We grew up together. Roger coached me. I mean, he's a little bit older than I am, so he coached me. Um, big Clemson fan. Uh, I, I, one of Roger's really dear friends was somebody who was a dear friend of mine, passed away fairly recently. And we went to several bowl games together to watch Clemson play Kentucky. Clemson played Mississippi State one year in a bowl game. I never wore a garnet shirt. I never wore a Mississippi State shirt or a Kentucky shirt. I wore a blue shirt or a green shirt or a, or a gray shirt out of respect to Roger and, and, and our late friend. Um, they were Clemson fans. They invited me to go as their guest. I, I'm not going to do that. That's me. That's just the way I'm, I'm wired. You. And look, I, I've I'm been as to contrarian as they come. I I've mean, you to, know that. I've been to several Clemson games as a radio affiliate and were invited up there. And I wore a Clemson shirt. I'm a Gamecock fan, but I mean, out of respect. I ain't doing that. Well, man. I mean, I did. I, I, I had a shirt that somebody had given me years ago that had it said Clemson on it. And just out of respect, I mean, come on. And I get that. I mean, you're more respectful than I am. You just, I mean, that, but but no, I, 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 there's no way I would do that. I mean, I, you know, but that's me. And and once again, I'm not saying somebody's a jerk, somebody's not a jerk, somebody's a uh, an a hole, somebody's not one. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll let you decide what 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 someone is and what they're not. Uh, I've had several opportunities to do that and to be kind of a pain in the butt of whomever I'm around. But but every time I've chosen it, and I get a lot of Clemson games different. I mean, that's always different. Yeah, and I have a big tailgate. When the Gamecocks host the Tigers, and I think I mean, there are people listening to the show that have invited to my tailgate, and I am absolutely, absolutely um, welcoming of anybody who of comes course. there that's and different. wears a Clemson um, shirt, hat, suit, uniform, whatever, jersey, helmet. I mean, you know, people dress how they dress. But but on a, on a UNC Charlotte Gamecock day, I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, it's just me personally. Um, but once again, it takes all kind to make the world go around, but, um, and it's America. You can do what you choose to do. But what is the point of somebody you know, doing that? I, I don't have any it's, idea. You'd to have, irritate and you'd, aggravate. You'd have to ask the person that did and that. And not be I, appreciative I, of I, I honestly don't have any idea. You'd have to ask the person that did it, why they, why they did it. But, um, but, but I'm thinking about the, the, the couple of bowl games I went to as a guest of Clemson, because I'm a big college football guy. Now, now I pulled for Kentucky. I mean, I did. I didn't openly pull for Kentucky, yeah. but in the back of my mind, I'm going like, please, God, make this thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but, I, but I love my friends. I mean, I, I, re- I love my friends and I respect my friends. And, and look, man, I mean, I don't live in a Gamecock world. I mean, I'm a Gamecock fan. I live in South Carolina. And, and there are many, many, many business associates and great friends I have who don't share love for the Gamecocks like I do. They love the Tigers just as much as I love the Gamecocks. 
And um, and I've had an example at a tailgate years ago where a Gamecock fan was a bit unwelcoming to the Clemson fans. And I let him know real quick, this is not your tailgate, this is mine. And as long as this is my tailgate, someone who's a Clemson fan will be as welcomed, in fact, more welcome than you are <laughs> because of the way you're <laughs> acting than any Gamecock fan. I mean, life's too short to harbor that ill will and I don't know, you know, pick a fight or not pick a fight. Um, but, but no, Mike, I would not have done it. Um, but that's me, you know, and everybody walks to the beat of their, their own drum or somebody else's drum or, or whatever, maybe CCR's drum or may, maybe, <laughs> maybe Bob Seger's drum or maybe, maybe the Beach Boys. I think we argued whether the Beach Boys were the greatest American rock and roll band, um, ever. But, uh, we're hearing reports, early reports that they're considering canceling the games Saturday um i mean i jamie said it sounded to me like rev you tell me Mm -hmm. if i'm wrong but jamie arnold chief meteorologist at wmbf sounded to me as if let's wait until wednesday you know late wednesday in the day we we should have some clarity as to what sort of conditions we can expect and i've heard they're already moving some some high school games around and maybe playing them on thursday but but the problem with the college games the gamecocks and tigers in particular i mean they both have home games You, you you drain the resources i mean it takes a lot of highway patrol and and you know public service uh authorities to 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 get everybody in and out of clemson in and out of columbia so if that's going to be stressful you know first responders i mean you got to have certain number of first responders there in case i mean when you get one hundred sixty thousand people in two places i mean a lot of things can happen and you got to be prepared for that but i mean if you cancel the game because of wind and rain then they'll never play another game in chicago or green bay you know, I mean, half the games will get canceled because of cold and wind and rain and snow and inclement weather. But um, but but I, I get it. I mean, if 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 we believe there's going to be a major weather event, and you've got a um, you've got only so many highway patrolmen and first responders, and you don't want all the highway patrolmen and first responders at Clemson and in Columbia. I mean, I understand that. Um, I, I can say this. I mean, I think Clemson will be a lot different. Game day is going to be there. Uh, it, it'll be a big crowd. Mm-hmm. I mean, NC State's a worthy foe, no question about it. Um, South Carolina will be different. It's a noon kick against a team that you believe you're going to handle. So if a lot of season ticket holders of Gamecock uh, lore are going to take a game off, it'll probably be this game. I mean, they'll probably uh, – I mean, I've already seen some of the um, – the, 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 what am I trying to say? Websites to sell tickets, some of the remarketed tickets. I mean, for the Georgia game, there were a few – for this week's game, there were a few. For the South Carolina State game, there's an abundance of tickets available to someone who wants to go out of the game. Now, Clemson, once again, will be different. I mean, it's a big game for them. It's at home. It's a night game. you got game day there. So the last thing Clemson wants to do is cancel, you know, the affairs of that Saturday and maybe play it on Sunday or Monday or something like that. It just doesn't have the, the sizzle that it does on a college football Saturday uh, and I'll say this, and I mean this sincerely, but with every fiber of my being, I mean this, uh, and I'm not masquerading as something. I hope Clemson gets to play Saturday. I mean, that's a big day in their season. NC State's a worthy team. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't look I, because I don't like Clemson football. Doesn't mean I don't like my Clemson buddies and my friends. And I hope they feel the same way. You know, I mean, I, I think you're supposed to pull against one another as a rival. But you don't have to dislike one another. I mean, this is not, you know, hey, I want to throw a punch at you. Because, I mean, no, I'm, I'm, really? I'm far past that. I mean, the absurdity of that is bizarre. But, I mean, they're, they're, you know, college kids are college kids. So I understand if there's a fracas and it involves college kids. I'm not sympathetic to that, but I understand it. 
But 40 and 50 and 60-year-old men taking it to that extreme, grow up. I mean, get a life. I mean, stop with that nonsense. Um, <laughs> once again, some of the dearest friends I have in this world are, are some of the biggest Clemson fans you could ever, ever imagine. And for them, I hope they get to play this Saturday. Yeah, I hope we I skip agree. the weather or miss the weather. The weather is not anywhere near as bad as it was. Now, now I'll level with you. I hope NC State whoops you. <laughs> but, but I do hope you get to play, and I hope you get to have all that fun during the day as you prepare. And if I were to get invited and go, I ain't wearing a garnet shirt. I mean, you know, I wouldn't wear an NC State shirt. I'd wear some blue or green or, or gray neutral color just to be respectful. But you wouldn't wear an orange shirt. I would I not. Take I'm it. not wearing an orange shirt. I mean, you can do that. I'm not. My, my wife came out with a shirt one day going to the game, and I said, that's orange. She said, it's Carl. Same neighborhood. <laughs> It's same neighborhood. You don't even want to be in the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Tennessee, it's Clemson, I mean, it's Florida. Florida has a lot of orange in there, in their colors. I mean, that's not coral. I mean, that that's orange. That is in the, the vicinity of orange, and that's um the vicinity of which, you, you know, go get you something going at a black. Now, now we know where your border is, the vicinity of orange. Yeah, well, I, mean, I see. It's, it's, you know, coral is, is very close to orange. It is. It, um, it, it could accidentally be misconstrued for orange and support of orange, so you don't want to wear that. I yeah, get you're right. I get it. You're exactly right. Now, I don't want everything. Everything in my closet is not garnet. <laughs> you know, I got buddies of mine, man. If they had to not wear Carolina, to go naked. <laughs> and I got friends with orange. You know what I mean? If, if you said, hey, you can't wear a Clemson shirt. I don't have anything to wear. I mean, what, what am I going to wear? Uh, where where that that dark blue tank top that's got Van Halen on the front <laughs> that you got back in '86 at a concert or something when you were worshiping the ground David Lee Roth walked on. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, morning, man. Uh, hey, there's a lot of pretty girls up there in Clemson and Knoxville. So give them credit. Uh, the Jose Canseco, a talk radio, can. Uh, you mentioned Pujols. Does he meet uh, Jose Canseco's standards? He's he's not on PEDs, or is he? I don't think. I mean, there's never been a scandal around Pujols. He's a big guy. I mean, he's always been a really big guy, but he's not muscle bound. I mean, it doesn't look to me like he's ever been on PEDs. Well, I'm just saying, I, I'm a big fan of his. I, I think if he had stayed in uh, St. Louis, he would have had 800 home runs. Um, so, I, I'm a big fan of his and. We talk about um, these hurricanes. When when Hugo and Floyd came about, did they have any, did they did they talk about climate change? I don't remember. I mean, just watching the local news. I mean, did they talk about climate change? Not that I can recall. Not that I can recall. And then, man, I, I hate to say this, man. I guess I'm a a, a news person, but watch this stuff. Jinsaki was on Meet the Press yesterday, and all I could think about, how in the heck is this going on? Oh, yeah, she's got the Peacock channel. Oh, she's going to be on the Peacock channel. And people like her, I mean, roping the wind, walking on sunshine, that's their energy plan. Uh, and she's an eclipse chaser. I mean, and I'll ask you this question, who benefits? By spending money we don't have, have you ever thought about that? Well, I mean, if 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 government's printing money that it doesn't have, and you're being subsidized by the government, then to me, you're you're, you're being financed by the public. Don't you think that Jinsaki, all this? I mean, think about the I call it the I ninety five corridor, uh, the media, Wall Street, government, uh, big pharma, big 
I call it big medicine. I mean, these big hospitals, the Ivy League. I mean, the 30, it's 31 trillion now, right? Um, who's benefited by this? And it's sad. This whole country, this is what's sad about it. We're debt and retirement or industries. I mean, go back to your Bible. What do they talk about? Uh, retirement. So we see this one. So, so when I look at this hurricane, I talk to these people every day. Well, I live in Naples. I live in Fort Myers. I live, they're all worried about this. And they all are from the North. They made a whole bunch of money, inflated money, union money. Uh, and now they take it down South, but you can't grow a country like that. And I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Well, I've argued that the coming conflict, and this will be a great conflict in America one day. Now, I don't know when. I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not a futurist. I, I'm not a visionary. I mean, I don't know what I am. I have these ideas and notions and, and perspectives, and I try to look out and see what I think is coming or what we're going to deal with. And I've talked about this for several years. The The number of private sector employees with pensions is in free fall. I mean, it's in dramatic decline. Uh, when I go to Pauly's Island, to a certain sports bar and I see those people in there and I hear some of the conversations. I'm not eavesdropping, but I hear some of the conversations because you Northern aggressors talk loud, freehold, just talk louder <laughs> on average than, than we polite Southerners do. But I hear some of the conversations retired from here, retired from there, retired from somewhere else and moved down South. We're, we're going to end up in a, in a very conflicting place by the, the, the private sector employee not having a pension, not having a retirement, having to work and, and struggle after a work life, and the public sector employee, you know, moving to Pauly's Island, moving to Charleston, moving to Naples, m- moving to, you know, Van Nuys, California, moving to some of these real cool um, places that a lot of people want to live. And th- there's going to be a place where the private sector worker says, whoa, you mean to tell me I am subsidizing and have subsidized the, the unfunded liabilities that, that the, the government made promises, not to me as a private sector employee, but to these as public sector workers. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm talking about a lot. It's across the board. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's everybody in county government, city government, state government, the federal government. Uh, it's out of control. I mean, it's completely and totally out of control. The, the, the contribution the taxpayer made. Here's the dirty secret. You ready? And I don't want to be the one to start this snowball rolling downhill. Let's hear it. No, this I'm not going to do good. it. I, I'm not going to do it. If you, the taxpayer, knew the contribution you were making to public sector employees' retirement, you would burn the building to the ground tomorrow. And I mean figuratively, not not literally. You would be so upset by the deal that has been made. And I can hear, you know, well, I mean, I put some up my money. They do. I mean, public sector workers put up some of their money. No question about it. You put up a lot more of your money for their retirement than they do. The taxpayer subsidizes public sector employment, excuse me, public sector pension and retirement in a way that you can't imagine. If you do, if you did know and were aware, and maybe some of this needs to be made public, but that's going to be a point of conflict at some point in time. Everybody in the public sector retiring at 55 or 58 or 59 or 60 years old, everybody in the private sector working until they're 70, 73, 74, 75. Now, some work because they love working. Some would rather not work, but they can afford to live the kind of life they want to 
without working. But that's, I mean, we're going to get there at one point in time, and we're going to build a lot of resentment and bitterness between, you know, a group of people. Both are good and decent people. I mean, I'm not saying the public sector employee is a bad person. I'm certainly not suggesting nor insinuating that. But but the model is going to cause this consternation that I think turns into animus that turns into, wow, really? I mean, my tax dollars are subsidizing their retirement, their pension by that percentage? And I'm 73 and can't smell retirement? Whoa. Let's take a break. Back in a minute. 843 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Dan in Florence. Morning, Dan. Hey, Ken. Uh, this is Dan. I usually make a political comment when I can remember what I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I asked your, your screener if I could make a sports comment. And you mentioned Albert Pujols. And if you look, <clears throat> he, if you look at his career, he had a, a Hank Aaron sort of Oscar Robertson type career. You know, Oscar Robertson, he averaged a triple-double in his career. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows about Hank Aaron. Pujols had a 10-year period where he averaged 41 home runs. His batting average was over three, 330 for that 10-year period and a hundred over 100 runs batted in. Now, that would be a career any ball player would like one year of. Pujols had ten years of that. Did he and, win the uh, triple crown, Dan? Was yeah, it? Yeah, I think thank you. Won. Yeah, he did. And uh, you think about that, and you put it in perspective of stuff today. And uh, I just uh, uh, I just read that the other day, and you mentioned his name, and it made me think about it. And uh, appreciate you let me take folks back a little ways to, about you know the way the way things used to be in sports. There you go. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate that. You know, I, I don't want to. I mean. It, I don't want to completely reduce Bonds to an asterisk I think is unfair to the Barry Bonds career. I mean, Rev and I were discussing a break or two ago. Bonds was going to be a Hall of Fame player whether he took steroids or not. He was not going to be the all-time home run king. But Barry Bonds was an amazing baseball player uh, pre-PEDs and pre-steroid era. But, but you know, he decided to go that route. Um, he became... Uh, he's the major league baseball player who has hit the most home runs ever, but he's not the home run king. And uh, but 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 I don't want to completely discount the career of Barry Bonds because I think that's unfair. I don't want to completely discount the career of Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens was going to be a dominant pitcher and was for a long, long time. I think when these guys and I'm not making excuses, but I think when someone like Clemens or Bonds gets to the backside of a career, they still want to be as good as they've always been, but they can't. And they see a way to adjust. They see a way to get by. Um, Clemens threw it 100 miles an hour until he got a little age on him and he couldn't quite throw 100, and it's, it's a little harder. And I think, you know, Clemens bumps into a doctor or some clinician who says, hey, b- b- you know, we got this way of doing things now. Bonds probably has the same uh, Rafael Palmero and some of these other guys. I mean, they were really good baseball players, whether they taken steroids or not. I mean, Roger Clemens was a phenomenal, phenomenal pitcher pre you know, steroids. Barry Bonds was a great, great baseball player pre-steroid, but I do think you've got to put the asterisk by their name. But their careers has not been reduced to asterisks. A lot of us are just hell-bent on excluding their accomplishments from anything about mainstream baseball, and I'm not one of those. I don't think Barry Bonds is the all-time home run king because he cheated, and there's no 
there, there's no case study of saying Aaron cheated or Ruth cheated. Now, if you want to have a complicated debate, let's talk about Babe Ruth and Henry Aaron. I mean, that, that to me, that's the fair debate. Is Ruth 714 more impressive than Aaron 755? I mean, that's a legitimate. I mean, if you want to really sit down at a bar and have a beer with a baseball guy or gal and talk about, you know, who's the greatest home run hitter ever, I mean, th- th- there's a lot. I mean, I think Ruth for three years hit as an individual more home runs than 50% of the teams did. I mean, he was a, I mean, he was a home run hitter um, extraordinaire. Aaron was a home run hitter extraordinaire. Um, Pujols has done it in a kind of sneaky way. I mean, you know, you never thought, I mean, when I hear Albert Pujols, I think triple crown. I think really good hitter. Uh, a solid guy in the middle of a lineup that, that you better be real, real careful with as a Braves fan. I mean, I've seen him hurt the Braves many, many, many times because he's a damn good hitter. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a really good hitter. And in his prime, I mean, he was exceptional. I mean, he was that guy in the middle lineup. You better pitch around if given a chance. You better not mess with, with Albert Pujols or you'll pay for it. Um, but I just never imagined I'd wake up one day with him at the threshold of 700 home runs. I mean, am I by myself there? You know, I mean, I, I mean, I understand he was a great, great hitter for a long, long time. You got to be to hit 700 home runs. But, um, but I, you know, I remember the beginning of this year reading something is like Albert Pujols is in pursuit of 700. Other they mean 600. Because only Ruth and Aaron and Bonds have 700, and Bonds didn't do it legitimately. So, I'm uh, sure they mean 600. And um, no, I mean, you know, hit two home runs at Dodger Stadium, and uh, the the only regret was Vin Scully didn't call it. You know, I was thinking about the play-by-play guy. I mean, imagine, I mean, if everything is perfect in the world of baseball, then Scully's still in the booth, and he calls Pujols a 699 and 700 home run. Now, here's an interesting debate to have. So, Aaron Judge hits home run number 60, and somebody in the Yankee organization negotiated the return of that baseball by giving some, um, I think they gave him autographed jersey and autographed bat and, you know, a couple of meal tickets. The the Pujols baseball is different. The guy said, "I'm not giving it back." I saw it. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I think giving they went it back. and got it authenticated, yeah. and then put it in their pocket and left. And they think it's worth somewhere in the neighborhood today a half million dollars. Now, now the guy, the the fan of the Yankees who gave Judge his 60th home run ball back, he says, "I did the right thing." I, I don't know. I mean, is the right <laughs> thing to forsake an opportunity to cash in on being in the right place at the right time? I mean, is that uh, let's say the let's say the uh, the Pujols home run's worth a half a million dollars? Just use their number, not mine. I mean, the Baseball Hall of Fame has basically said that right now they believe that baseball is worth a half a million dollars. I mean, I think it, it makes a lot more sense to not give the Cardinals or Major League Baseball a, a commodity back. I mean, keep it in your pocket right. and negotiate. But exactly. but I mean, there's no way that I would trade a five hundred thousand dollar baseball for a few jerseys. You're right. I mean, I might no take two fifty. You know what I'm about? You know, give yeah. me give me a check for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I don't care if it comes from Major League Baseball, the Cardinals, Pujols. I don't care where it comes from, as long as it clears the bank. I, I think the fan did the wrong thing in the Judge situation, and I think the reason is you. how much does Aaron Judge make? How much is the Yankees worth? Right, millions and billions. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, how, how, what what share of his income did that fan have to give up to end up in the right place at the right time? Same thing with Pujols. That Dodger fan or Cardinal fan who sat in Chavez Ravine in Dodger Stadium, what, Friday night? Or was it Saturday night? One or the other, Friday or Saturday night, catches the baseball. I mean, that half million dollars to him is a lot bigger deal than it is to Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. the Baseball Hall of Fame, the L.A. Dodgers, or the or the St. Louis Cardinals. 
So I think the guy in New York made a big mistake. Now, he thinks he did the right thing, and maybe God in heaven rewards him for that. I mean, maybe when he gets to the pearly gates, Peter says, you're the dude that gave the baseball back. God's got a place for you over here. And then when the guy that catches the pool's ball gets to the pearly gates, Peter says, you sorry, no count greedy son of a gun, you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you, you get on these silver streaks. You don't get the gold streaks. You, you get the silver streaks. Put yourself in that position. I mean, if you've got a, a, a baseball in your hand that, that has been authenticated, it's worth a half million dollars, and the, 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 the officialdom of Major League Baseball says we want it back and we're willing to give you lifetime tickets to the Baseball Hall of Fame. No, no, no. I'll take, take $300,000. I'll take that in five hundred. Yeah, well, there you go. I'd start at five hundred. dollars <laughs> I mean, they could probably get it less than that because what have I got in it? And the tickets yeah. and some jerseys. Well, I mean, that, that's the point I'm making. I mean, did they negotiate or not the price of that ticket? I mean, you've gone to the Braves game. I've yeah. gone to the – it's an expensive proposition. It I mean, it's hard for people to swing many trips to Major League Baseball games anymore. Um, I think the guy with, with the judge ball did the wrong thing. I think the guy with the Pujols ball is doing the um, the most capitalist thing you could imagine. Let's go to the phone. Tim in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Tim. Hey, uh, how y'all doing? Hey, Tim. Um, good. Uh, two things. First, I'm a huge Trump supporter. The Santa's is fine with me. And secondly, Pujols didn't win the Trump crown. And... You were talking about Ruth and... Well, who did with the Triple Crown? Was it the guy from Detroit? Yeah, Cabrera. Okay, Cabrera. I knew they were one of those guys, big, big, heavy home run hitters that, that led the league in average and, um, and RBIs. So you, Cabrera was the guy, not Pujols. And um, Ruth had around 8,000 at-bats, a little bit more. Pujols had 11,000 at-bats. And Aaron had about 11,000, too. So... That kind of puts a point on what you were talking about, home run hitting. That Pujols had 3,000 more bats so far than Babe Ruth had. That's kind of interesting. That's cool. Yeah, I, I read an article back in the days of reading. Thank you. I appreciate the call. Back in the day of reading things, they asked what is arguably the greatest hitter in Major League Baseball history. I mean, if you ask insiders and, and, and I guess the um, the professorial class of baseball – who the greatest hitter ever was, they'll say Ted Williams. I mean, most people will say Ted Williams was the greatest hitter that has ever lived. Um, they asked Ted Williams before he died um, who the greatest hitters were in baseball, excluding himself. And he gave a name and he gave a comment. And it would be like, you know, hit the outside fastball better than anybody, you know, spray hitter, never swung and missed. I'm just talking about Tony Gwynn and, and George Brett and Mike Schmidt. You know, some of these other real, real, real good Wade Boggs would have been another guy. Um, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mann. I mean, you know what I'm saying? The likely suspects. Hank Aaron would have been part of this. But um, he had Ruth number one. And the, the quote was, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, the one, the only Babe Ruth. And um, I've just heard those stories about the league didn't hit many home runs, but Ruth did. You know, live ball air, dead ball air, pitching air, taller mound, shorter mound, you know, uh, all sorts of specialists or specialists. You know, you didn't have to face Bob Gibson in the eighth inning when he was out of gas a little bit. They had a, a, a guy specially, you know, specifically signed to pitch the eighth inning and the closer pitches the night. I mean, it's a different kind of kind of game today. I think the only debate in Major League Baseball home run hitting is Aaron and Ruth. I mean, I think if you're going to honestly debate who the greatest home run hitter 
in the history of Major League Baseball is, it's Henry Aaron or it's Babe Ruth. And I think you could really and truly argue until you run out of beer. <laughs> but the Tim's point <laughs> the baseball there was game is over. 8,000 at-bats versus yeah. 11,000. Yeah. I mean, I get all that. Yeah. I mean, I understand that. But, you know, you can't, you can't punish a guy for playing 3,000 bats longer. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I understand that. I mean, it, the, the home run per at-bat and all these other sorts of things. But if you're going by that, I mean, I think I read somewhere that, you know, uh, what's the kid's name that plays with the Phillies now? Harper? I mean, I think I read that, you know, he'd gotten 100 home runs faster than anybody and 200, then he got injuries. And I mean, they, they, there's all sorts of stories out there. People that have got injured, people that didn't get injured, um, people that played in big ballparks, people that played with short porks. Uh, short porches, you know, a left-handed hitter in this ballpark should have hit a hundred more home runs than a left-handed right. hitter in in that ballpark. But but yeah, I mean, and Albert Pujols cemented his legacy in Major League Baseball forever. Seven hundred is a magical number. Whether it's seven fourteen, seven fifty-five, I'll tell you this: I don't know how many bonds had. That's kind of interesting mm-hmm. to me. I mean, I, I, I you know I, I appreciate the numbers of baseball, the math. I mean, some of the argument in baseball is a 300 hitter, a pitcher with a below three point, uh, you know, nine strikeouts per inning. I mean, baseball is all about numbers. I honestly don't know how many home runs Barry Bonds had. I know exactly how many Henry Aaron had, and I know exactly how many Babe Ruth had. And if I'm sitting in the bar drinking a beer and you want to talk home runs and you talk about Bonds, I got one word. He cheated, man. Yeah. I mean, the guy cheated. Bonds, excuse me, Aaron and Ruth, uh, to me, are the center of the debate on Major League Baseball and its home run um, king. But Albert Pujols all of a sudden became uh, an eternal figure in Major League Baseball by hitting career home run number 700. So congratulations to Albert Pujols. And congratulations to baseball. That's good for baseball mm-hmm. to be reminded of ah, the, the, the aura of some of these uh, milestones and numbers. But if they interrupt something I'm watching to show an – an Aaron Judge at bat again. I think I'm gonna. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Well, he's still I'm pursuing a, uh, Maris's record. I right? know the 61. As How a many times they interrupt? Every time he swings. Oh. Every time he swings. Enough. Would you rather watch a ground out to Dansby Swanson? Yes. Or Aaron Judge hit his 61st <laughs> and and Roger Maris tying home run. I mean, as a baseball fan, I know. Yeah, of course you know. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. David in Effingham. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, guys. Morning. Hey, look, I, I really appreciate it. I think you said Bruce, the CEO, that was the called in earlier. Correct, yes. Yeah, man, you know, I think that's a big crack in the blue state armor that you're seeing. When they send in the goons, they're hurting. They're, they're having to force people to think stupid stuff. That's kind of an interesting hmm. analogy. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I've... I, I was going to talk about it today, but the conversation went down the road of Fed and debt and, you know, what are we going to do about it and Wall Street's reaction. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of things right now fundamentally problematic for the Democrats. I'm going to spend a good That's bit right. of tomorrow's show. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. But I'm going to spend a good bit of the um, the show tomorrow going through some of the data. I mean, it's not just – I mean, the polling is the polling. You trust it or you don't. But some of the data – Pew did a lot of data gathering. Gallup has done a lot of data gathering – and, I mean, if you believe the Democrats are in a good position, then you don't trust the data. You either trust the data or you trust the poll. And I'm talking about, you know, uh, the, the Republicans are plus 16 on the, um, on the economy, plus 19 on inflation. Um, those are just realities 
that that you know both political parties are going to have to come to grips with and come to come to terms with hey i told rev during the break greg maddox and roger clemens pitched 47 years between them maddox 23 clemens 24 they had 709 wins maddox 355 clemens 354 and they pitched 10,000 innings so their careers were perfectly overlapped i mean one has an asterisk because he was caught with peds the other i mean nobody accused maddox of ever being on steroids um but but you know here's my trivia question eight four three six six one oh nine three seven pepsi of florence is its sponsor thanks to pepsi of florence and the correct answer wins you a six pack of pepsi product a couple of takes mondays to make fridays t-shirt we talked about the all-time home run champion in major league baseball who is the all-time winningest pitcher in Major League Baseball history. Who has won more games as a pitcher than anybody in the history of Major League Baseball? Hmm. 843-661. Maddox is 8. Clemens is 9. Who has won more games as a Major League pitcher than anybody in MLB history? Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? Cy Young. Yep, Cy Young won 500 and 11 baseball games in his career. Who is this and where are you calling from? Aubrey Montrose, Florence. Thank you, Aubrey. Appreciate it. Good to hear from you. Hang on a second. We'll get you back to Freehold. Uh, Cy Young, 5'11". Walter Johnson, 417. Pete Alexander, 373. Christy Matheson, 373. And then you got Warren Spahn, Kid Nichols, Greg Maddox, Roger Clemens. Steve Carlton is up there. Nolan Ryan won 324 baseball games. But Cy Young won 500 and 11, 11 games. He nearly won as much as Clemens. Well, not nearly as much. They won 700 uh, baseball games. But thanks, uh, Mr. Matros. Appreciate you calling in and um, providing the right answer. So the Braves play today. The Mets do not. So the Braves have a chance to pick up or lose a half game. Mm. They're one game down to the loss column with nine games to go. Eight by the Mets, nine of the Braves. Uh, the hurricane may or may not affect what if happens in were, Atlanta. If you're managing the Braves, would you just say, okay, let's just take our chances with a wild card, or will you try to go for it? And I try win to win them division? all, man. I try to win them all because you know their players are showing some fatigue. Uh, obviously, yeah, but they get paid a lot of money to win. I try to win them all. I mean, that's just me. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I, resting, asked, I understand yeah. that resting people and getting your staff and you know your rotation set up the way you want it. Uh, I try to win them all. They make a lot I'm of money, you. man. Exactly. <laughs> Go out and win baseball games is what they're paid to do. It's like the guy I talked about in the, in the race and the tires were having problems. And he said, I'm a race driver, a race car driver, man. We go fast. <laughs> Take a break. No, we'll, That's hey, it. we'll talk tomorrow.